movies have heart. Boom, boom, boom. Have mind. Have power. Have ambition. I wanted to do something like that. Why not? Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime painter, and so much more, Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're looking at the greatest film never made, a project so epic and unique that even in failure, it would change Hollywood forever, its story becoming part of the mythos of cinema before culminating in a feature-length documentary in 2013. It's Jodorowsky's Dune. Joining me on this trip to Iraq is our two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord, my own personal Quizettes Hatterack. It's Liam O'Donnell. How you doing today, Liam? Dude, Doug, uh, I'm great. I mean, we're we're, we're kind of talking about uh, messianic things today. This is this is a like absolutely a, a messiah episode. And uh, my recent uh, intake of messianic things, I've I've actually been reading um, the House of X stuff, which I know at this point is old, but you know I don't read comic, comic books. You're talking about, yes. yeah, 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 and uh, it's been cool. I, I want to thank friend of the show and uh, our former co-host Adriana Gober. She's been pushing. She's been saying you should read it. You should read it. And I finally jumped in, and uh, uh, a chunk of my time not parenting today was spent reading it, and it made me very happy. Well, I'm glad you have all this free time to be reading comic books, Liam. While I mean, we're, des- us- we're describing poop time. I was just looking for a euphemism <laughs> to say that. <laughs> well, you could have been, uh, while sitting on the John, let's say, uh, reading about uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky and his uh, his unfortunate uh, uh, take, or I shouldn't say his unfortunate take, his, his unfortunate experience in trying to adapt Dune to the big screen. I did. I read his story that he published in Metal Herland. Uh, about that experience uh, and the much more extended uh, scenario, but that we'll get to later of him and Dali, which was uh, kind of upsetting, actually, in some ways. <laughs> well, it takes more than the two of us, Liam, to control the spice. With us, as always, on Jodowowski is the great writer director Julia Marchesi. How are you doing today, Julia? I am peachy keen, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Hoping to adjust some spice later. Just hold some <laughs> space and time. You know, expand my consciousness. Those, those usual things. I mean, this is what I expect from a Jodorowsky movie, right? Like, expand my consciousness, please. Yeah, I mean, this is, in fact, this episode is going to involve a lot of expanding of consciousness. Uh, since our last episode, Julia, you've actually traveled to do some filming. Yes. Yes. Has it been that long? I'm like, how it long has. has it been? <laughs> it's been it's been surprisingly long. In fact, it's probably been a little longer because we wanted to make sure that, you know, you not only were able, not, not that we could get in the way of it, but that you were able to come back from that and not be expected to suddenly dive into Dune content for a month straight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I went to Maine and I, I filmed my Stephen King short film, I Know What You Need, and it went Fantastic. It went so good. Uh, we stayed uh, on campus at the University of Maine. Uh, I got to sleep in the dorm room that Stephen King stayed in when he was there. Oh, just that's pretty amazing. epic. I saw right? the photo. It's, it's so great. 
it's pretty good. And the great thing about it is like they haven't changed the rooms at all. So it looks exactly the same as it would have <laughs> in the 70s. And there's these drawers in the desk that people have written graffiti in for years, like going back to the 80s, I saw. Uh, and somebody wrote, I don't think this was him. Stephen King did coke in this room, which I really appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> so well done, whoever that was. <laughs> Uh, so I'm so, so pleased the film went so well, and it's uh, going into that whole editing post-production phase. Well, I, I one of the fun things about doing this podcast is that we're kind of getting updates as we go along, and I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited. And I was so happy that it was seemed to be going well from the kind of updates that you were giving while you were out there. But wow, it sounds like it, 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 went, it went even better than could be expected. It really did. Like uh, everybody on, you know, the, in the cast and crew came up and said they thought it was like a lightning in a bottle kind of situation where it just felt like we all pulled together to make this thing happen and it went the, like the best it could have done. I mean, it was 22 people I hired who had never met each other. We were staying right. in a dorm for mm -hmm. a week, right? <laughs> so you're like, that could go real pear shaped. Um, and it, it didn't. It didn't. Everybody got along and we made it. And now that, you know, the end goal is that we know Stephen King will watch it when it's done. So that's a, a little bit of pressure, but I'm. Pretty happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julia and Liam, today we are really heading into some uncharted territory because on our first three episodes, we were talking or have been talking about films that were completed, that we could talk about, that we could break down, talk about our kind of our feelings about and our responses towards. Well, today that's not really the case. We're talking about a failed project. As I said at the beginning, perhaps the most famous film never to be made. And it is based on the uh, the famous science fiction novel, Dune, by Frank Herbert. So for those who are new to the Jodowski podcast, we want to make this a very comfortable experience. If you don't have a lot of familiarity with Dune, if you don't have a lot of familiarity with Jodorowsky's Dune, either as a concept or as a documentary. So we're really going to start at the beginning. And with that in mind, let's talk about what is Dune. Now, Dune is a science fiction novel written by Frank Herbert, published in 1965. It won the Hugo Award and Nebula Award for Outstanding Science Fiction of that year. And it's frequently cited as the best-selling science fiction novel in history. Spawned many sequels, prequels, interquels. Uh, Frank Herbert continued it, and then his son has carried on with it as well. Uh, now, in terms of the plot, boy, I could go on and on. Uh, I have to be fully, <laughs> fully honest going into this that though I've always been aware of Dune as a concept, I grew up a nerd, just like I'm sure a lot of my, our listeners did. Uh, and so I was certainly always kind of aware of Dune. I was aware of the David Lynch film. I was aware of other adaptations. But I never got around to reading it. Uh, and in, in preparation for this episode, I did start the process of reading it. I got about 100 pages in. And then I was like, you know what? Let me watch some of these adaptations because it was going a little slowly. I read the comic book adaptation that came out this year. I watched the, the extended edition of David Lynch's film. I watched some of the, the sci-fi uh, network version from the year 2000. So I'm a little Dune heavy right now. So when it comes to the plot, I'm just going to go through it very, very quickly before we get into the talk. About, about it as a novel before we end up talking about the adaptation process. So Dune is set in the distant future amidst a feudal interstellar society in which various noble houses control planetary fiefs. It tells the story of young Paul Atreides, whose family accepts the stewardship of the planet Arrakis. While the planet is inhospitable and sparsely populated desert wasteland, it is the only source of melange, or the spice, a drug that extends life and enhances mental abilities. Melange is also necessary for space navigation, which requires a kind of multidimensional awareness and foresight that only the drug provides. As melange can only be produced on Arrakis, control of the planet is thus a coveted and dangerous 
undertaking, the story explores the multi-layered interactions of politics, religion, ecology, technology, and human emotion as the factions of the Empire confront each other in a struggle for the control of Arrakis and its spice. And I'll tell you, that is only scraping the, 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 the smallest layer of the surface of what Dune is all about. But when it really comes down to it, it's very much kind of Lawrence of Arabia in space is, I think, a way that, that a lot of people describe it. It's very much about that kind of interconnection between these different planets and the people ruling it. You can think of it in kind of a Game of Thrones e-way, just as a way to kind of introduce your mind to how this concept is. But what you really should take away from that very short description is this would be a very difficult thing to try to turn into a motion picture. Uh, and in, it's kind of notable, of course, that as of the time that we're recording this, we are on the cusp of a new adaptation being released, perhaps the biggest adaptation yet, at least the biggest adaptation that got completed. So with all of that in mind, I want to get both of your takes. What is your life experience with Dune? How much do you know about this property? I want to start with Julia. Julia, are you a Dune head? Are you a big fan of this uh, of this franchise? Uh, I can't say that I am. I and you know, as a, I'm a big reader, right? So like, this is all mm -hmm. one of those books that I'm like, I'm gonna get around to eventually. Um, and so I had actually found it in one of the little like little free libraries that people have in front of, of their course. houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found one of those, and I was like, oh, great, Dune. So uh, I started reading it, and I mean. I love to read and I will go hard on books that are dense and within 25 pages, I'm like, oof, wow, man, this is rough. It's not rough that it's bad. It's just rough that there's so much dense information to take in. And like, there's so many words I don't understand coming at me. And I, it was very overwhelming. And I sure. felt like, I felt like it was going to be like a really uphill battle the whole way. And not in the, again, like, I don't want to sound like it's not, it's very well written. I, like it's, you know, but it's just, it's, the most like tech technical crazy like so much sure. info so much info um so i just felt i felt i was like i would have to take a breath to like go hard again on it you know it's kind of notable like, you know one of the things that was a difficulty when david lynch was trying to adapt dune into a film was trying to get all this the, the, the lexicon, all the terminology, all the houses, all the different characters. It was so confusing because it was so extensive that they had to give out sheets of paper kind of explaining it to people when they came in to watch it in a theater. Can you imagine that, having to read <laughs> a summary of things before you even sat down to watch it? But it totally makes sense when you start reading the depth, I guess I should say, of the uh, the mythos that's on but display. I, I, and I think that's what people, you know, the people who are into it, I think that's what they really like about it, right? Yeah, like you absolutely. You can delve as deep as you want to delve. Like, he's done so much work for you, and you can go crazy on these, you know, these lines and these these backstories and all this stuff. I think that's great. Um, it just is uh, a little intimidating to the novice, <laughs> Yeah, I will say. And that is exactly the position I was coming at this material from, a total novice. Liam, were you a novice? Are you uh, are you someone who's had a little experience either with the Dune novel or any of the adaptations? Um, I've read Dune probably 10 times. Whoa. Holy crap. And I've managed to struggle through the sequels a couple of times. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, why is I, this a shot? Why had why did I not know about this before? Never, I didn't expect that answer either. Never, why didn't you asked. do the outline never for this asked. episode? Never that would have been, I could have been asking you questions all week. <laughs> uh, but that's the issue, right? Is that I've read it many times, uh, and yet I still get confused about certain details. Sure. Just the other day, I was like musing about something on Twitter, and someone had to remind me, like, "Oh no, what you're describing doesn't happen to Paul. It happens to Paul's kid." And I was like, <laughs> "Oh right, I forgot. That's Paul's kid that that happens to." Because 
it gets convoluted. And in fact, I'll say I've read the first novel, I think about 10 times. It, it, it might be more or less, but a bunch of times, uh, starting from when I was too young to really understand it. It took me a while to really get all of it. But like there's, I think, you know, experts will correct this, but I'm pretty sure there's four main books that are part of the series. And then there's like supplemental stuff. Uh, I've only been able to finish that fourth book once. Because by the time we get to that book, I'm like, I don't care. Like, I just can't invest in it. And it's <laughs> it feels like the most frustrating thing in the world for me. Because with the first two books, I feel like I'm in something that I, I wouldn't say I understand, but I care about and I'm moved by and I want to understand more. Not that different from a from a Jodorowsky movie, really. And mm-hmm. yet by the third book, I'm like, I just think we've lost the thread here, guy. Like, I just don't know that we're, we're following the same thing. And, and maybe that's on me. Maybe there's a bigger plan that I just don't understand. Uh, I've watched the Lynch movie a number of times. Mm. I will say that uh, the first time I read the book, it was after I had seen the Lynch movie. Oh, and, it, okay. and it took me quite some time to understand that they were the same thing because I felt <laughs> like they were so different. And I was 12 at the time. And I remember thinking this has got to be something else, right? Like, yeah, it has the worms and stuff, but it just doesn't feel like the same thing. So it, it took me a while to understand, like, that's how an adaptation works, idiot. Because I I didn't know. I hadn't watched, <laughs> I hadn't read, a lot of the things I had watched that were adaptations at 12, I had never read those books. So I didn't understand. They're all different, man. Nothing is like the book. Uh, so uh, anyways, yeah. So I've been a fan of the book for, for a while, but I don't know. It took me a couple of readings to kind of get at the point which I I take to be at least as the book first develops, um, this idea that messiahs are a bad thing, that they are right. inevitably a tool of dominance and destruction, and that sort of the the glory of that first book is someone falling into that position on purpose, right? This isn't a, a random, you know, messiahs are made by. A random historical fact, and this is not that. This is a messiah created over time with very purposeful planning, both socially and genetically, and then that person going, no, that's a bad idea. I don't want to do that, actually, Uh, which is great. Only then it falls apart, and then a bunch of bad stuff happens, and I won't ruin for people who want to read the sequels, but... uh, but it goes it goes awry despite his best efforts. And I remember as a reader, and even today, being like, "But why though? I don't understand where we're going with this text." It's so interesting to hear this, simply because all of the research I've been doing this week has been on the first book, so I know nothing about what happens afterwards. And your uh, point and your interpretation, or maybe just the themes that you, that that are kind of clear out there for people who know about this this series, the idea of this messianic figure being kind of uh, um, that you shouldn't look up to someone like that, that certainly doesn't come through in the David Lynch movie where it seems like his pursuit of being God is basically not only the point, but it is like the greatest thing (laughs) when he gets to the end of it. Everyone is very into it at that point. Hey, you know what? We're not really, again, talking about... We'll talk about the adaptations if we get a little time at the end of the episode, but uh, but I'm just... I I wish that we could talk a little bit more about Dune, but that's not really what this is about. No. But I do. I'm going to stick with you just for a second, simply because you're so familiar with the material. What is it about Dune that captured your attention as a kid, or or what did you think captured the attention of people in the '60s when they were first reading it? What is the draw of Dune? I think one of the things that is also part of the alienation, right, is that, and I don't know, there's a technical term for this, but excuse me if I don't know the technical term. Sure. The society of Dune is not a Latin society. Uh, in fact. 
whatever historical things that Frank Herbert had thought would happen, uh, this is a um, Arabic-based society. A lot of the words that come to us in the text that need to be translated are based off of either real Arabic or Arabic-sounding things Herbert made up. Sure, mm-hmm. and I and I love that. I think that in and of itself already speaks to a world different than what we know. Uh, it's also a world in which the technological apocalypse has already happened. Machines have already gone wrong. If we were to place this on a timeline with the Terminator, this is post-Terminator, right? The machines <laughs> have already risen up, and we defeated them. We won. And because of that, we found biological ways, uh, mostly, to compensate for the lack of computers. And I think that idea... Uh, for me, when I think of the 60s, probably ties into the way a lot of people felt about a return to nature. It somehow manages to be futuristic while still suggesting that maybe computers aren't the uh, the future in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that sets it apart from an Asimov or some of the other sci-fi writers of the time, that imagining a, a far, 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 far flung future in which there are no computers, technically speaking, is like different it's unique you know uh and then just the imagery of like dudes riding on worms and and the (laughs) the the force fieldness of it all in a sense it's funny because a lot of things you hear a lot when people talk about star wars is how star wars is a is a space fantasy western but not really Mm sci-fi and like Herbert's novel is technically sci-fi, but man, does it borrow things from fantasy and other genres in a way that I think is really interesting. Um, Also, I think because it is so technically written, uh, I I read it when I was 12, and what brought me back to it was the giant worms, not the fact that I understood (laughs) half of what I was was reading, right? Are you also a a Beetlejuice fan then? Yeah. We've got giant worms there too. Of of course, right? Why not? How about Tremors? You a big Tremors guy? Oh, yeah. Again, we're hitting all the right notes on this one. (laughs) Um, but but what I was trying what I was going to say is I think the technicality of it and the larger ideas of it um, cause people to feel rightly or wrongly I'm not going to determine that for someone else that there's more to learn that if right. you pry at it if you pick at it if you meditate on it you're going to get it some deeper meaning and I'm not convinced that that's necessarily true but that idea is what brought me back to it a lot and I, what I bet brought other people back to it. Julia, with the knowledge that neither yourself or myself have made the efforts that Liam has regarding this series, do you have any maybe idea regarding the appeal on your end? I mean, just the material, maybe? Like, what is the appeal of artists uh, when it comes to this material? What's the appeal for Dune as a concept for you? I guess it's what kind of science fiction do you want? You know, this is like a very specific flavor of it that I think is probably good for... um, science fiction readers that like their, their science fiction a little harder, right? Like a little, yeah. like harder Absolutely. to get into. And and I think that there is a, probably also that feeling of accomplishment that you have delved into it enough to understand it, right? Because, you know, already me at first, first I was like, ooh, I don't know, you know, like that kind of feeling. And I'm sure a lot of people have that feeling and like to be able to be like, oh, well, they don't see what I see, you know, that kind of, there's something more there that you can get into. Um, I mean, that sounds very appealing. And I think that that's probably, it's like a, being in a secret club, if you will. I made a comparison to Game of Thrones earlier, and I don't, I've, I've read that in a few different articles comparing kind of – maybe I think it's just about the kind of infighting and all the different houses and things like that. Is the general take – and Leah, maybe I'll get it from you first – regarding Dune is that it probably would make a better television series rather than a movie simply because of that density of character, density of language, and all of those other uh, aspects that you mentioned. 
I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know that that is my feeling, and I've seen that feeling expressed by other people. I think there are just as many people who feel like maybe it's just too much to adapt. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something that I've, has been really crossing my mind as I went through all yeah, this. It's just like yeah. maybe some things just cannot be adapted. And, of course, we are saying this without having seen the Denis Villeneuve film, which is getting some really interesting reviews as it played at Cannes recently. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it maybe in order to capture it appropriately – it's not the kind of thing that is best adapted into another medium. Part of what is a... If people like the book, then that must mean they like a lot of internal dialogue. Right. There's just a lot of people talking to themselves, and not just the people you're supposed to like. The people you don't like, you get a lot of their internal monologue, too. <laughs> you know, internal monologue to me is exactly what I don't want in a movie, quite honestly. Like, if I'm being really clear, like, that's... And that's from someone who owns... Uh, two copies of the Lynch version, uh, which has a lot of uh, voiceover in it. So, like, whatever. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I just think there's a there's some people. I, I'm unwilling to make a determinative claim one way or the other. But I think there are people who love the book who think, why bother? It doesn't need it. It's not going to work. Whatever you do is going to be bad. And well, I, I don't know. I feel that way. Like uh, everyone, you know, because uh, everyone's been telling me not to read the Dark Tower or watch the watch the Dark Tower movie, right? Right, right. Like just don't watch it because they've got eight books. They're trying to squish into one, and it's just not going to work, and it leaves everybody unhappy. And I feel like I'm in the camp of like I won't watch it now. I'm like, fine, I don't need to see it because I know it's sure. not going to be what I want. So fuck it. Why would I do that? So I think there's probably the same kind of feeling, you know. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and that's a really interesting example. My understanding is that that particular book isn't as much of an adaptation as it's like it exists outside of the novels. So in an attempt to, I think, please everybody, they ended up pleasing nobody. And it has, yeah, I mean, and there's these toxic reputations. Going back to what you said just for a second, Liam, about the inner monologues, I uh, had not seen the David Lynch Dune film before, which I know is a little bit of an embarrassment. So I watched the extended edition, the three-hour version of it, which is not a place you should start with when it comes to that film. And if you want to talk about people speaking their inner, inner monologues, I swear that that movie invented ASMR because it's just scene after scene of people just whispering breathily every thought that they have. And I don't know how you how you turn that into a film without having characters do that. Uh, uh, Julia, why do you think that people have had uh, such difficulty translating this material to the screen? I think if you know if you're basing all of your uh, story on on backstory that right. we can't you can't get. I think that's kind of the problem, right? Like as a reader, you've had hundreds of pages where you know everybody's motivations for everything. But actually in rewatching the Dune thing, uh, the new, the David Lynch's Dune, I was like, I don't really understand anybody's motivations in this. Like I really don't <laughs> understand where everybody's coming from because I feel like they've given me a lot of character development, but no character development at the same time. Um, it, it, all, it felt very weird, but I, um, I have to bring up in very Julia fashion um, 1984 Sting in this movie. Yeah. Holy hell! I mean, <laughs> I'll watch it just for that. Like those like five seconds of him coming out of that steam bath. I'm like, oh, yep, earned it, earned that ticket. Delicious. I, it's it's it is such a it's a wild movie. And I mean, again, we're not here to talk about David Lynch's Dune, but it is uh, over the uh, the over the 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 width and breadth of this material over the past week it was good to see someone take such a big swing and of course we'll hear about Jodorowsky's own kind of reaction to David Lynch's Dune before we finish up today and speaking of Jodorowsky let's talk about where he was at the time uh, that that we're talking right now we just finished on our last Jodorowsky episode talking about the Holy Mountain that was a massive success on the not just the midnight movie circuit but kind of generally and uh, because of the popularity of it uh, that film and El Topo 
French producer uh, Michel Sidou uh, contacted Jodorowsky in 1974 and offered to fund whatever film he wanted to make next. Uh, for those who don't know Michel Sidou, you, you've probably, if you've seen the documentary, you're already kind of aware of him. But he's a French businessman and film producer and is the president and chairman of the French Association Football Club, Lille OSC. Uh, I actually am not very familiar with his work as a producer. I went through his filmography. Not a lot of films that I recognize myself, except for his uh, Cyrano adaptation with Gerard Depardieu in the early 1990s. But, uh, but obviously, you know, th this was the meeting of two people that was kind of fortuitous at the time. Jodorowsky, he's looking for someone to bankroll his next film. Of course, Alan Klein, that relationship was going to turn sour. So uh, Sadu ended up being the man who could make whatever project he wanted to make happen, happen. And out of every project he could do, and even Jodorowsky seems a little confused by this, he chose Dune, Sadu agreed, and now uh, Jodorowsky realized that after he agreed that he actually has to sit down and read it. So at that point, he hadn't even read the book. So what could his fascination with this, with this property have been? Again, it's not like people weren't talking about it. This was the novel had already been out for almost a decade. It was massively popular. It had sold massive numbers. But like I said, in the documentary when he's talking about it, uh, it seems like he chose it almost randomly. He even says that he could have chose, you know, Don Quixote or some other property. Uh, and he seems a bit perplexed by why he decided to go with Dune. What do you think, starting with you, Julia, what do you think was the appeal uh, of Dune for someone like Jodorowsky? Uh, probably the Messiah aspect, I would guess. Yes. <laughs> He's really obsessed with that, right? I think that feeling kind of fits in his wheelhouse. <laughs> I wonder if, if he felt like he could have made it work if he would have cast himself. Yes. <laughs> He needs to be Paul. He's a little long in the tooth for a young boy named Paul. But, you know, I'd, I'd watch it. It's funny because, I mean, he did the next best thing, right? He cast his own son as that character and and tried to meld it into... I mean, it. I think the messianic aspect of it, I think you're absolutely right. And also the fact that, frankly, it's some trippy stuff here. And not that Jodorowsky was always... Uh, drawn towards the trippiest material, but certainly it was his reputation and the fact that there's this spice that, you know, expands your mind and your consciousness and your life and all that sort of thing. And certainly the visuals had the uh, potential to be absolutely wild. I, I guess there's there's all sorts of things that someone like Jodorowsky could have glommed onto, but the very fact that he wasn't that familiar <laughs> with it and then, you know, had to kind of devote his entire life to it, it just seems strange. That means I've, I've, I've never thought ever in my life that I could ever understand what would be going on in that man's brain for a nanosecond. Yeah. So anything he does doesn't surprise me because I'm like, I just couldn't, I couldn't tell you what he'll do next. And so for him to just be like, Dune, and everyone's like, okay. And you're like, why'd you do that? I don't know. And you go, okay. And you go forward. And that's how you live as Alejandro Jodorowsky. <laughs> Liam, uh, as someone a little bit more familiar with the, the, the property, uh, can you think of any other aspects that might have appealed to Jodorowsky? Is there a spiritual side to it that you think might have stuck out to him, or or is it just a mystery? I mean, I think his initial choice is definitely a a combination of a mystery and also just the book was very popular at that time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But do you think he was trying to make something that would have wide appeal? Because that didn't really seem to be his modus operandi. No, I just point. think it's probably why he heard of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There might have been other books that would have themes he cared about, but they hadn't, you know, it, it, the book was popular enough he knew what it was. When I don't get the feeling, he's not busy doing a million, you know what I mean? Like, if he if he was meant to have read it before he decided to do it, when was he going to read it? On set of The Holy Mountain? He's reading Dude? Like, <laughs> I, 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 you know, and in between Zen texts or, you, you know. You know how much he reads, though. I feel like he could have yeah. done the time if he wanted to. The book came out in 1965 I and this is 1974. Right? I 100% believe he wasn't reading a lot of science fiction at the time, or oh, even I mean, that much who, fiction. 
I mean, who knows? I mean, remember, he would go on to to write comic books that were steeped in a lot of science fiction. True, true. But but I mean, I just like was definitely of that as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. So it just it seems like while he appreciated the setting, he went out of his way to change certain themes. Like uh, some of the things that might have appealed to other people were some of the things he changed to get at something else altogether. Um, And and you know, and that was after like the initial choice was like. He just chose it, and it's hard to know, like, what about this thing? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if part of it was that Hollywood had already determined it couldn't be made. Like, when they went to get the rights, <laughs> people people had already been like, yeah, you can have the fucking rights because we're not doing shit with it. Like, we're not right. going to make this into a movie. So maybe part of it was the challenge. I don't know. But once he started doing it, like, while well, he kept – a lot of it, like people say, well, his would have been entirely different. There's a lot of stuff there that's. It's not like he he left the book altogether, but some of the very like sort of central things that matter to people, he did tweak for his own purposes. So maybe that was part of it. Maybe he actually wanted something where he could change it, and you know, it, I wonder how many people seeing it uh, would have been more overwhelmed by the spectacle than even concerned like. Oh, why doesn't Leto have a penis? You know, yeah. things like that. <laughs> I, I have a question, though. Um, Absolutely. If, 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 if Michelle Sudu came to him and like, you know, I'll give you money for whatever you want, why did he not do one of his own scripts? Yeah. He, right. he must have had right. a thousand, right? right? Why, like, he doesn't seem like the adaptation kind of guy. He's like, it's all about him and well, what he I mean, wants. I, I, I wonder if part of it was the idea of reaching a larger audience and also that this project may have been uh, potentially much larger than anything that he had uh, had put together for himself up to that point, right? That, that the concept of it was so large that he thought that he could, you know, he could do something truly out, kind of outrageous with it because maybe the, I mean, we know that, that his uh, films up to this point had not had particularly large budgets. I imagine that what we've heard about the budget of this film, which by the way, there's been a lot of things reported. So no one really knows what it was somewhere between kind of 10, I think, and, and $30 million. I mean, just ridiculous amounts of money for him at the time that this was just a way to make the biggest movie possible. But then again, you know, talking about adaptations, The Holy Mountain was at its core an adaptation of Mount Analog. Right. Yeah, which we talked about, but of course, Mount Analog. You ask the average person on the street, including myself, had never heard of it before. Taking on a property that even at that moment was beloved, whoo! I mean, it's a good thing that there weren't message boards at the time, because you can imagine they would have been after him. <laughs> at, you know, and, and in fact, you. This is something we'll talk about a little, little bit later. Where even at this point, people have a kind of a lot of negativity towards Jodorowsky for his uh, seeming attempts to want to change. The substance of the story but i mean it's a great question uh why why dune i mean that is i think maybe one of the things we're going to be uh, i wonder reflecting on i wonder if part of it is the whole genre question right like el topo is purposefully a reimagining a reimagining of the western right um uh and, and in some sense holy mountain maybe is like the the adventures you know like the the, sure. the journey of the the hero or whatever um what you know it, it, maybe he's just thinking like science fiction that's the next genre i want to take on that's the next sort of uh film history i want to uh, uh, uh you know address cuz he's kind of been doing that with his other three movies i, I don't know but he, then again I, I think back to julia you know who knows he might have just seen it on the shelf and been like that sounds good Let's Let's do that shit. I have no idea. I mean, maybe. I mean, as someone who seems to believe very strongly in the idea of fate and kind of these things, stars aligning to make things happen for him, uh, which is something you hear a lot in that documentary about him meeting people by chance that he had always wanted to meet that ended up being his collaborators. Maybe it was it was he looked to his shelf, saw a copy of Dune, 
And that is just what it ended up being. By the way, just the very idea of Jodorowsky just sitting in his apartment reading Dune, <laughs> yelling the spice, the spice is the thing, or something like that. <laughs> it, it holds a lot of appeal to me. So this is where we are. Jodorowsky has chosen his project. He has a someone helping him back it. He has this kind of uh, larger concept for what this movie is going to be. But now he needs to be able to actually try and put it together. So we are going to take our break. When we come back, we're going to talk about it. It's Jodorowsky's Dune from the years 1974 through 1977, the greatest film never made, right after this. I have 84 years, but I am still creating. I am not the... All my life I create, and it's more and more and more. The mind is like a universe. It's in, it's constant expansion. Like the universe, exactly like the universe, open the mind. The opening of the mind is every day is open. That was this picture. Open the mind of all the person who work there. From the producer to the artist, from, from the workers, for everyone was an opening of the mind. This work was ambitious, but not too. Was ambitious. Myself, I have the ambition to live 300 years. I will not live 300 years, maybe I will live <laughs> one year more, but I have the ambition. Uh, why don't you will not have ambition? Why? Have the greatest ambition possible. You want to be immortal? Fight to be immortal. Do it. You want to make the most fantastic art of movie, try. If you fail, it's not important. No? We need to try. In 1974, Jodorowsky began working on possibly the most ambitious film ever attempted, a feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Jodorowsky was making not only a film, but, quote, a prophet. His end goal was to change the world. Alejandro's Dune would star his own 12-year-old son, Brontis Jodorowsky, alongside a cast to include Orson Welles, Mick Jagger, David Carradine, and even Salvador Dali. The team of assembled visual artists were some of the most provocative talents of, of the era, including H.R. Giger, Chris Foss, and Jean Mobius Girard. The groundbreaking special effects were under the control of Dan O'Bannon, and the soundtrack would be created by the mighty Pink Floyd and the French prog rock masters Magma. For two years, Jodo and his team of spiritual warriors worked night and day on the massive task of creating the fabulous world of Dune. In order to secure the necessary Hollywood funding, they created over 3,000 storyboards, numerous paintings, incredible costumes, and an outrageous, moving, and powerful screenplay. In the words of Jodorowsky's producer, Michelle Sudu, it should have been enough, but it wasn't. It's Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah, the massive undertaking that, that managed to take up three years of the life of Alejandro Jodorowsky did not culminate in a film, but it did culminate in a great story. In fact, a series of stories. We've already been referring to it several times. Jodorowsky's Dune is a documentary from 2014 that really does cover the breadth of this. And one of the things that we're hoping to do on this episode is not just repeat stories and repeat things that we've, we heard from either that or from its director, who we interviewed recently, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but just some of our thoughts on the concept as a whole, on some of the participants. There's a lot of familiar names I know to all of us that were part of this project. And sort of just kind of thinking about it, and something you know that we've been uh, probably putting a lot of thought towards over the past week or weeks, kind of 
conceptualizing what this final product was going to look like. And we can kind of do that because we've seen, you know, uh, examples of some of the storyboards. We know what the look he was going for was going to be and how that actually uh, was meant to come together. Uh, One of the things we actually asked the director of Jodorowsky's Dune is whether these uh, storyboards for this film are ever likely to be published. That's something that you'll be able to find out in our interview when you hear that. But first, I want to talk about this concept of the spiritual warriors. So, this grandly mystical tone was typical of the project. Sadu rented a castle for Jodorowsky to write in, and when his screenplay was finished, the auteur set about recruiting collaborators, or as he put it, these fellow spiritual warriors. These spiritual warriors, as I already mentioned, ended up being Dan O'Bannon, Mobius, Chris Foss, H.R. Giger, Pink Floyd, uh, Magma, and I think he also included Dali within the, the spiritual warrior names, though he's part of the cast, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I want to start, uh, Liam, with you. Uh, Liam, do you have uh, any thoughts on some of these collaborators that uh, that uh, Jodorowsky was working with, Dan O'Bannon, Mobius, Chris Voss, etc.? Do you have any uh, experience with them, or are you fans, uh, or are you a fan, I should say, of some of these people? Well, yeah, I mean, the when I first heard this list it was as part of the documentary and before the documentary even made the connection i'm like aren't these the alien people and I, you know <laughs> i didn't know that going into the documentary i didn't come preloaded like oh you know jordorowski's dune leads into alien i had no clue so when the, he's when we're getting these parts of the movie where there's o'bannon and mobius oh and then they find giger i was like wait a minute here <laughs> uh but but also uh for me, like I, I, it was, it was. It's interesting to think about a because I've always found Dan O'Bannon kind of a mysterious figure, you know. Yeah, like, absolutely. Attached to so many amazing things, but also maybe you know didn't get as much work or as much attention as I, I think maybe he deserved. I, I don't know if he, you know. I don't know as much of his like personal history as much as I know the projects he was attached to. But then also knowing that some of the projects he tried to make happen didn't work out, you know. Um, Mobius, I just know because uh, my stepdad had a had a uh, heavy metal subscription, you know. Sure. And so I got to know him through that, and was you know always thought he was one of the most amazing artists. Chris Foss. I didn't know the name, but as soon as I saw his art, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. Like, I knew immediately sure. recognized him. Absolutely. Himself. And then Giger, I mean, alien aside, if <laughs> you know about metal, you probably know about H.R. Giger. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and and of all the people in the movie, the, the involved in this movie, the only other one I find utterly mysterious the same way I find Yodorowsky mysterious. You know what I mean? Like, sure. uh, everyone else, it's like, okay, they're very interesting people, but Giger, I mean, even in the documentary where they actually get a chance to talk to him, I'm like, I don't get, this dude's crazy. Like, I don't, he is a mystery to me. Uh, I don't know that he's the sort of mystery I want to explore the way I do Yodorowsky, <laughs> that maybe there's stuff there I, I don't want to uncover, uh, but, but, but also a mystery. I'll say the only parts of this that is weird for me is the musical stuff because I believe at the time it was probably really important to have Pink Floyd and Magma involved in this thing because of how they influenced music and how you know the, the sort of the towering figures they were at the time sure. um, utter 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 non that's that's a that's a minus five for me sir that's <laughs> That's a no thank you on, on both those fronts. And in Magma, I hadn't heard of in advance. I, I searched out yeah. their music after the documentary because I was like, well, God, th- this seems so interesting. It's just not it's just not my vibe. I don't think it would have made the movie bad. I think I would have loved the movie even with even with Pink Floyd. I would have loved the movie. Oh, boy. Look at you. Yeah. Look at you taking the stance of uh, controversy there. I mean, this was the era of progressive rock. Yes. Right? So, I mean, 
it makes total sense. I, I, as soon as he says it, you're like, of course. I mean, who else is it going to be? I but don't you, know, though. This is a thought that I had, though. If he, sure. you know, We know that he's buddies with George Harrison from Holy Mountain, right? Mm-hmm. And like, it didn't seem like they part. They seemed like they parted on amicable terms. George was like, no thanks. But then there was like, didn't seem like they were badly parted. So just have him do the music. How, yeah. I think like that would have been incredible in 1974. And remember, John Lennon was was a big fan of his as well and was yeah. going to be, right? Why not get, you know, I mean, if you have the chutzpah to approach Pink Floyd for doing a soundtrack of your movie, you think that it wouldn't be out of the question to approach John Lennon about the same thing. Especially if Jagger's in there already, right? Like their buddies <laughs> as well. I mean, <laughs> right. part of my feeling on that is he's, I, I suspect he's thinking, well, Harrison's not going to work because he wouldn't show his butthole. So he's out. <laughs> he's, what, he's, it, what does it have to do with making music? Because he's, he's not a true warrior. He wouldn't show his butthole. <laughs> oh, I see. Honestly, no. I know you're joking, but boy, that does seem plausible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also think like it, it's very telling to me that he goes to speak to them while they're recording dark side of the moon you know what i mean right. like this is like the the peak of of their powers and and i think they have an association at the time that it's very much progressive in some way i mean sure. julia don't get me wrong like i'm literally defending something that could not be more distasteful to me i you know i'd rather almost any other musical figure be who he's talking to but you know wow. this is what he felt and i think like Tell us it, how you really feel about Pink Floyd there. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. But, I mean, this all makes total sense to me. I mean, you right. are a punk, as you love to tell people. And as a punk, that, I mean, punk came out of the, uh, the the bombast of progressive rock that was getting so complex. And it was getting outside the, the kind of purview of your average person. You know, punk was a response to that to a certain extent. And what better uh, group to represent all that you dislike about music than Pink Floyd? Yeah, I mean, I that's true. I don't want to say that as an actual thing because I know lots of people who like punk who still like Pink Floyd. I don't think it's a rule or anything. No, I, I just, don't think so. <laughs> I just personally really don't like Pink Floyd. It's just not my vibe. But I think at the time it made sense, you know. And you know, if I was a teenager in 1974, I'd probably fucking love Pink Floyd. Honestly, it just you know, as as who I am, it just doesn't appeal to me. Well, that's that's fair enough. And like you said, I wasn't familiar with Mag- Magma. Doing a little research on them, you can see why they would have been appropriate for this kind of project. Obviously, their their work is steeped in science fiction and fantasy and that sort of thing. Seems like a, it made a lot of sense to have their participation. Though they do seem like the odd name out on the list, right? Simply because maybe not in, not maybe not in France at the time, right? Maybe they were just as well known as these other figures. And you know, it's funny you even say well known because a lot of these names weren't that well known at the time. They just have become so uh, since then. Uh, just uh, going back to how this the project piece all started, uh, Jodorowsky actually encountered Dan O'Bannon. He was looking for someone to do the special effects for the film. First, he approached Douglas Trumbull, of course, famous for doing the special effects for 2001 and kind of a legendary figure in, in special effects generally. But then he went to see John Carpenter's Dark Star, which, by the way, just the idea of Jodorowsky going to see Dark Star, <laughs> a movie I love, by the way. Uh, and he walked out, you know, knowing that Dan O'Bannon worked on the, those very low budget special effects and that he would be the collaborator, the the uh, the collaborator, the spiritual warrior that he would approach. And I love that kind of method of working. Just happen to see a movie, happen to see a name. It's like, this is my guy. Julia, this list of names, again, a lot of legends on the list. Any of them jump out at you in particular? 
Uh, well, I, I do like Pink Floyd. Uh, they do have a song called Julia Dream, so they win extra points for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dan O'Bannon, I know, obviously, you know, he's he's epic and I'm a horror fan, so he looms large in that horror world as well. Um, and then, I, you know, I, I've always said Geiger. I don't know if that's wrong. We can do that Jodorowsky, Joe Hodorowsky thing and just everyone yeah. wins. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody knows his stuff and, you know, it's so haunting and and terrifying uh and and i'm i you know this is the thing is like you when you see this list of names you're like i just want this i really want to see this and you know and it's it's such the delight of knowing that this was an almost like that it like that fantasy of what you have in your head of what it could be especially knowing all these people and like how could they ever come together to make something fabulous but the, you know the way that jordorowska describes it in the, the documentary is just like it was all meant to be everything happened for a reason they all fell in line and like everything the universe was like on our side and that kind of stuff and you're like well kind of was and then it yeah. wasn't so i don't really know what that was but <laughs> <laughs> was on your side wasn't on your side something happened i don't know <laughs> I, I wonder what the world would have been like if he had went and seen dark star and was like john carpenter that's the collaborator i want as one of my spiritual warriors yeah. in 1974 and then we get the jodorowsky john Carp. hey look carpenter could have come on and did the music for the film as well hey that's another idea i'm throwing out to the universe the alternate universe where this movie actually came to pass but that's uh, the great thing is that alternate universes is like every single one of those universes exists so you don't have to worry yeah. about it they all well, that all happened those lucky bastards in those other universes. Uh, <laughs> I, I I just want to talk briefly about some of the figures here as well. I, I mean, I think it's all been said at this point. I am a massive fan of Dan O'Bannon. I always get really angry in some of those documentaries about Alien where some of the other screenwriters that came afterwards, they changed his work around, and they're always like, oh, the original script wasn't that good. Dan O'Bannon's work was shit. And I'm like, leave him alone. <laughs> He's great. He, uh, he, wrote, he, he, of course, wrote and directed Return of the Living Dead. We don't need to go over his uh, filmography, but he also wrote Dead buried one of my very favorite very underrated horror films um and and you know he was just part of the horror and science fiction genre throughout the 1980s and 90s and just a name that you see pop up again and again and uh, of all of the names on this list his feels a little bit tragic uh, not because he didn't find success in his own right but just because of how much and this is something really reinforced in the documentary how much he had kind of devoted his entire life to making this project happen and how important it was to him you can just you can just feel even though we don't have a lot of his own words in the, the um in the documentary because he's passed on that that it was just this kind of massive massive disappointment and i guess how great is it i guess in the long term that just a few years later alien would be made with a lot of these names on the list but we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit as well so jodorowsky he started working with mobius uh, at what Jodorowsky called a superhuman pace. So Gerald uh, Mobius broke down the entire film into a storyboard of 3,000 drawings, starting with a long, unbroken shot inspired by Orson Welles' touch of evil, uh, except instead of just moving around a town, it actually crosses the camera, in this case, crosses across the entire universe. So the biggest puzzle piece in terms of these spiritual warriors was Jodorowsky himself. Um, the way that he encountered his fellow collaborators that felt almost faded. As I mentioned before, you know, he was uh, uh, trying to find Mobius. He was uh, uh, looking for him. I think he said he went to his agents or something along those lines. And Mobius was just there. And there's a several other stories like that, uh, that, that him looking for collaborators 
or looking for specific people, and then they would just appear in his life, and that's the way that he would find them. And that includes people like Dolly, who he, uh, he his uh, pursuit of becomes one of the notorious stories of that. At the time, uh, th- uh, these collaborators are starting to work together. Frank Herbert, the writer of Dune, actually traveled to Europe in 1976 to find that $2 million of the $9.5 million budget had already been spent in pre-production, and that Jodorowsky's script would result in a 14-hour film at the time. He knew that Jodorowsky had taken some creative liberties with his work, with the source material, but Herbert said that he and Jodorowsky had an amicable relationship, which is kind of interesting to hear. That's not something that was actually explored in the documentary at all. The fidelity aspect is not something that the documentary seemed to be that interested in, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, uh, starting with you, Liam, knowing that Frank Herbert's work is something that had had been meaningful to you, knowing that Frank Herbert had an amicable relationship with Jodorowsky, does that make you feel any way about the adaptation process? I don't know. I don't... I mean, yes, in the sense of I like that he was willing to uh, work with someone who was going to change what he had done. And I hope a few people who are authors feel this way, that like adaptation, you know, inevitably means interpretation, right? Like that, that, at least in my mind, it always means interpretation, that that there isn't a literal, uh, you know, page to screen sort of relationship. I also like the idea that, Herbert, because I don't know a lot about him as a person. Sure. I like the idea that he got along with Yodorowsky, because that tells me he's a certain kind of dude. You know what I mean? So uh, that in and of itself, the fact that they didn't get it. And and also, I just think I have such a bad taste in my mouth, sort of culturally speaking, thinking about the ways that um, that King and Kubrick didn't really get along. Sure. Uh, even though they talked a lot, according to King, like they, it wasn't, it was, well, weird. I mean, I mean that, but that's, I mean, that might be exactly what we're talking about here. Right. I mean, yeah. while Kubrick was making the film, it seemed like they were, you know, they had a lot of communication. It's the final film that King had some uh, difficulty with. I guess a lot of that would have been known ahead of time though. Right. Because a lot of the things that uh-huh. he wrinkled out are things that would have existed in the script. Yeah. 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 Ca- so. Well, and casting, he had a big problem. With yeah, well. that, yeah. There's that yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 You know, actually, Julia, maybe you have more insight in the idea of adaptation than any of us. In fact, certainly (laughs) you do. And I mean, speaking specifically about what Liam was just talking about, when it comes to that adaptation process that you've been through, Mm -hmm. like you love, I mean, this is no surprise to anyone. You love Stephen King. You love his work. This is something that you that you have devoted a lot of your life towards. So when you are working on an adaptation of one of his works, how much pressure do you have to be as accurate as possible to that original work? But even on top of that, how much pressure do you have to bring something original to it? Yeah, that's that delicate balance, right? Because yeah. I want the story to be as faithful as possible. And a lot of the story that I, you know, when I adapted it, it line for line, like exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But then there's things like there's scenes that transition scenes that you can do in a little like montage in the book that you can't do you have to have a scene to explain what's happening, you know? So it's something, the fear that I had is like, can you tell it's my words? And now it's like, oh, it's not his words, it's her words. Like, can there, is there a big, a big difference and that kind of thing? But it is, you know, this is his story through my, my lens, right? It is an interpretation of like, this is how I see this story. And my version is going to be different than anybody else's version. And I think this is what's interesting about adapting books is you're going to have, you know, Jodorowsky's version is not Lynch's version is not Villeneuve's version, like they're just different, because it's seeing them how that person sees that story. Sure. If so, in this case, Jodorowsky, now, we're not saying that Frank Herbert, like signed off on anything here, he just said that they had an amicable relationship. 
he didn't really have any right to stop Jodorowsky, but it probably would have looked bad if they had made a movie and then while they're trying to market it, Frank Herbert's out in the press talking about how much he hates the movie or the process or that he was squeezed out of it or something like that. I think there's a, a, an intentional attempt to get the creator involved, which is probably a good thing. Julia, if you had heard that Stephen King did not want this specific story to be adapted, Right. But you had the ability to do that. Would, would knowing that the author did not want that to happen, would that be enough to stop you from doing the adaptation? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, is it with him in particular or just with any author that you might be adapting? If it's something where they were against it so much that they're going to like publicly announce that they're against right. it, then mm-hmm. that would just make me look bad, right? It would not, even if I'm like, I'm coming from it from a pace of love, they're like, no, I still don't want it. Then you have to respect what their author's wishing. Do we know, um, P.S. did... Uh, Frank Herbert and Lynch get along. Now that my understanding, and I was just reading about this yesterday, is that after the Dune film came out, even though the reaction from a lot of critics was very negative, that uh, that when Herbert saw it, and again, this is just from the IMDb, IMDb trivia, so you got to take it with a certain grain of salt, that he said that when he watched it, he saw his words, you know, coming out of the characters. He saw the scenes that he wrote coming out of, and he, you know, he was he was satisfied with what Lynch had done with it, and I think he was also aware that Lynch had filmed a lot more than ended up being in the movie. So I think he was sympathetic to the idea that there was an attempt made that wasn't necessarily fully successful. Right. I mean, it's, it's a real, it's a real pickle. Cause even there's a part of me, even in my brain that thinks like, if you want to adapt something so much that you're going to devote that much of your life to it, then you must love it enough that you want to be um, faithful to it. But there's also a part of me that thinks, well, maybe it's just a central idea and that you have other, like many other ideas that kind of branch out from it and you're just going to take a concept and do something completely different with it. I think my problem always comes with the kind of in-between where it's just like some parts of it are incredibly faithful and then other times it just branches off into something wild. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, when it comes to Dune, maybe it's the very fact that I don't have a lot of emotional attachment to the material that makes me more interested in the Jodorowsky side of things than anything else. And with that in <laughs> mind, Jodorowsky, he's adapting Dune for for I, anyone who's familiar with Dune, there's a lot of kind of massive set pieces in it. There's a lot of very famous moments that have been repeated in a lot of the adaptations. There's characters. There are, there's the sandworms. There's the Dune planet itself. Uh, just continuing with you, Julia, is there any parts or characters or elements of the book that you would have liked to have seen brought to life in a Jodorowskian style? I mean, it's got to be those spice sequences, right? Like that's yeah. what it's that's what he's made mm-hmm. for. Because I feel like the Lynch version is is very light on that. We get like one kind of big sequence of it, and even that isn't particularly trippy. Sure. I feel like you know the the Lynch version of trippy and the Jodorowsky version of trippy are like on different levels. Sure. Um. Uh. So I think like that would be really fun, and I think you know he would probably go as I think the the Lynch version the, the sets and the costumes are are stunning. They're very beautiful, mm-hmm. but they're also somehow not as grand as I want or weird as I want. <laughs> I guess I feel like, you know, it's it's obviously, you know, ancient architecture done in like a modern style. And I think that's really cool. But I feel like like even like the, the outfits they wear, like the, the soldier outfits are just kind of, eh, you know, like I feel like I feel like Jordan Rouski would be, I mean, we know how he loves color and costumes and, you know, he goes crazy with all that stuff. So I feel like if you could get his because like that's what I, one of the things I love about him, he just has this vision of like this person's wearing this thing and this thing and this thing and this is there's this thing on this wall and like it's all very specific <laughs> right like you were like he put everything exactly where he wants it and like that's what I love so I think getting that v- visuals of Jodorowsky would be the part that would be super appealing to me it's so interesting that of all the people who ended up doing the big Hollywood adaptation of Dune it ended up being 
David Lynch, who might be the director that is most often compared to Jodorowsky, even though the films that they make are very different, but just the idea of their kind of devotion to a certain heady style of filmmaking. And I, you know, one of the things that's mentioned a lot about the documentary is Jodorowsky's response to David Lynch's Dune, the fact that it was, that he thought it was bad. And because it was bad, it made him happy because it made him feel like, you know, that, that it was other people suffered the same way that he suffered. Because obviously Jodorowsky has a lot of respect for Lynch, and he's spoken about it in more detail outside of it. But just the idea that that when filmmakers have had to make adaptations of Dune and other things, that there's a necessary compromise within being in the Hollywood system. And one of the exciting things about Jodorowsky's Dune as both a concept and the documentary is here were artists who were able to create a group of people of other artists and they had enough money to possibly do something without having to compromise. And of course, it all fell apart as soon as those compromises had to be put in place. And that's one of the things I find so fascinating about it. You know, the pursuit of art versus commerce is is kind of at the core of where Jodorowsky's doing falls apart. Liam, you probably have a little bit more familiarity with the material than the uh, the two of us. What part of the books would you have liked to see come to life in a Jodorowsky-directed Dune? I think he would really nail the grotesquery of the Harkonnens. Yeah. Uh, which isn't to say that Lynch is as bad at that. And I, I so let me just forget about Lynch for a second because sure. I think making that comparison is a bummer. But I think that um, he would have really there would have been something uniquely Yodorowsky about the Harkonnens. I think, as Julia already said, I think the costuming from what we see in of his mock-ups was pretty amazing in and of itself. Uh, and uh, I also agree about the spice sequences, but specifically there's this idea of the Quitsats Haderach having connection to his genetic forebears, that, sure. that, that his part of his power is... Of being a full human is a connection to his genetic history and the people who lived before him. I just imagine Jodorowsky visualizing that in a way that just seems amazing. You know, that just seems like he'd be able to do something with that that would be really trippy. I also think there's a number of sequences he describes, not just in the documentary, but in his essay in Metal Hurlant, that were different than the book. Those also seem cool. Like what the idea that Leto is now uh, you know, castrated and in fact mm-hmm. uses his blood to impregnate the lady Jessica, that is not in the book at all, still sounded pretty dang cool. So I, I don't know. That, that is, by the way, a specific element that that people who are big fans of the Herbert book have taken issue with, is that kind of level of change uh, in regards to it. I was watching a video on YouTube where someone, you know, I think it was something like, I'm glad that Jodorowsky's Dune was never made. And that was used as a specific example of, of a change in a character that was they felt was essential to the character, that by changing Duke Alito and making him a eunuch. But why why, though? Why though? I don't know. What are you talking about? That's what I'm saying. Like, is that I? I the thing I feel the uh, the thing that I think he changes the most is the end, right? Right. Uh, the other. Well, I mean, we don't we don't really know. You can find pieces of the the script. I mean, the script is out there for the most part. I mean, we we don't know exactly how much was changed. We're only going by the kind of summation. All right. That we've so read. based upon what we've read, right? It seems like the end is the most change that happens mm-hmm. and i still think it accomplishes something that i find very appealing right but the reason i think it changes the most is because i think it thematically changes some of what is going on in the book right but i don't think that 
the other changes to me matter that much. I, and, and you know, maybe that's maybe that's me revealing that after reading it multiple times, I don't care about the book as much as other people do. <laughs> right? But I don't think that that's true. I think I really do love this book. I just don't. I'm not convinced that changing something that like that necessarily matters unless the point unless you're going to make the point in your video about this that like the state of Leto's penis is essential to the <laughs> to the narrative and I don't know how like that's that's my frustration when I hear people make these complaints is like okay but you don't know right because there's no movie to evaluate and see how it works in the context of the movie and there's nothing in the book where it's like well if Leto doesn't have a, a you know attached penis then this moment won't happen there's nothing in the book about his cock like I don't know why that matters <laughs> so like I, I don't know it's there's stuff like that sometimes where I'm like if it's additional and it makes sense in the new narrative that the movie is because the movie is a different thing then that should be evaluated on its own i don't really care that it changes unless it changes something that in my mind is essential about the original material and even then i might be able to understand why it changed you know what i mean like that's the other reason thing too is like i might not like that it changed but i might understand why the creator felt the need to change it and i don't hear that conversation a lot which makes sense because there's no fucking movie you know what I mean? You don't know. Like I know I wouldn't like Joe Raskin's dude. You don't fucking know, man. Like let's just let's just talk about the phenomena, which is this, it, that that the fact that the script itself is an accomplishment, the the storyboard, the costumes, everything about it is an accomplishment, and there's no fucking movie. That's more interesting to me than like. Also, I think it would have sucked. Like that doesn't. It's not interesting to me. I can't even imagine what that would feel like to go through this much pre-production. Right? This is three right. years of your it's life. Unbelievable. Like, I went through like a year of, of pre-production and I was like, I can't imagine. I mean, and that's, I mean, I don't want to compare myself to this at all, but I like, I just recently went through that and know how much time and effort it takes. And I can imagine doing that for three years. And then you don't get to make the movie that you've been working hard together for, for all this time. It must like, and I know that Joe Dorescu talks about it in the, in the podcast, I mean the documentary and, He's, of course, very good about looking past failure and, and moving forward. I think that's what I like about him. But just break your heart. Just yeah. goodness. I think I think it, it was the project that most, you know, came closest to kind of destroying his confidence in regards to these things. Doesn't seem like the kind of guy that you could hurt his confidence. But, you know, there was a reason that it took him so long to kind of make another film. And, you know, he was at the height of his creative powers in 1974. One of the things about Dune and its adaptations that I've always found interesting is that the character of Paul... The, the, the center character of at least the first book, as far as I know, I don't know how it goes, uh, goes forward in the series, that, that in these adaptations, they always age him up pretty significantly. You know, Kyle MacLachlan uh, and uh, Timothy Chalamet are both, I think, the, well, at the time that they were in the films, mid-20s. In the case of Jodorowsky, you know, he had his 12-year-old son playing, you know, a, a starting in pre-production 12 he would basically be the right age at the time that they would likely be filming if they ended up making the film of 15, which is what the character is supposed to be at the beginning of Dune. I feel like the entire film changes a lot when you have a, a, a character that's accurately aged in the film. It's one of the things about watching um, some of the adaptations is is that this is a character that is obviously supposed to be younger than the actor that's playing it. So it would be very interesting to see Brontes in that lead role, but I have to say I'm a simple man when it comes to the things I want to see Jodorowsky bring to life. I just want to see those sandworms, man. I just want yeah, to see them. Yeah. I want to see how he did it. But that is a question that I want to get your takes on as well, which is how would he do it? 
the special effects of 1974 are not what the special effects are now, and they are not even what they would be four years from then. Uh, Star Wars was 1977. I always use the example of Logan's Run in Star Wars. Logan's Run 1976, Star Wars 1977. I love Logan's Run, but it looks like a film from, you know, it, it looks like a film from the 1970s, while Star Wars looks like something completely different. It felt like the leap forward between those two years was almost incomprehensible. And we, at the time that Jodorowsky was making this, 1974, 75, 76, we are in the before times. Was the massive amount of special effects needed to bring this sort of thing to life, was this just too much to overcome in 1974? Uh, I, I want to get your take on this, uh, Julia. D- outside of the, the, the other challenges that we've talked about, how could they have done this without it looking cheap, without it looking silly, without it looking uh, like it, it it didn't kind of live up to the material. I mean, the thing is, is I feel like you do need those kind of like Star Wars special effects kind of stuff. But then I feel like Jodorowsky is also the kind of guy who would completely buck against that. And yeah. be like, no, you know what? Sandwords, puppets. How you feel about that? Yeah. They're going to like, this is going to be representative of this and we're going to do this as a, you know, and just not just completely like subvert what you want your and what your expectations are and do something completely different with it because he's right he's from the theater he's from mime he can do you know make it with humans or do it however he wants to do it i feel like you we put special effects in our brain as something that's like oh it's only made with matte paintings or models or on the computer but actually if you take yourself out of that box as jodorowsky often does i feel like you wouldn't need that as much as you think you would when you have someone like that who's so creative as a director i mean maybe i think you're probably right he would have to be a lot more inventive in regards to that and the thing is I, i one of the things i love about Dark Star, the film, which, I mean, for those who haven't seen it, very low budget. Again, it was created as a student film originally. The the special effects in it are really impressive because they're made on a super low budget. They have to rely on that inventiveness that we were just talking about. And maybe that combination of minds at its core w- would be able to do something extraordinary. Liam, what I mean, do you have think? You ever, have you ever walked away from one of his films and been disappointed by the visuals? No, but then again, I'm also hoping that he wouldn't just film a real worm in close-up and then blow it up with the firecracker. <laughs> oh, you no, hit the you... nail on the head with that one. <laughs> but you're, at, you're absolutely right. But the, the scope of this is just so big. And remember, of course, I'm not that, that anyone here would forget, if the concept originally that this movie is going to be, I think 10 hours might be an exaggeration, but say it was a four-hour long movie, right? I mean... The expectations of audiences at that time would be that you are not going to... I mean, I don't know what they would have expected. If I walked into a movie called Jodorowsky's Dune, and I knew... Or just Dune, I guess it would be called. And I knew who Jodorowsky was. Four hours of that, to me, sounds like the most incredible thing in the entire world. But it also sounds like something that you would need to go into a dark room afterwards to recover from. Well, it just reminds me of his early theater work, right? Where his performances are like four hours long. Like, he expects you to have that stamina. And, like, if you can't keep up, then get out, right? Like, he's on board. Like, you better be on this four-hour train. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very fair. I also think that these collaborators, knowing the depth of their visual style that, you know, he would want to bring that to life in as accurate a way as possible. And that is, boy, just the thought of, of, of again, a design by H.R. Giger and, and put through the brain of Jodorowsky. It's kind of funny because you kind of do see that in David Lynch's Dune because Giger helped some of the design of that. And you can kind of see it in the background, but it just feels like a completely different thing. Jodorowsky and Giger collaborating is different than Ridley Scott and Giger down, uh, collaborating and certainly different than Giger and Jodorowsky collaborating. Liam, what do you think? Was were the special effects requirements of something like this simply too much for a film like this to achieve? 
I have a lot of faith in Jodorowsky that he would be able to pull something off that would uh, completely amaze me. Uh, however, there's a there's a part of my brain that's like, there's no fucking way. Like, it, 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 that it might have played at the time, but if it did exist, then there'd be people watching it today who'd be like, what is this? This is dumb. You know right. what I mean? Like, I just think there would be a certain amount of skepticism to whatever they were able to pull off just because of the limitations of 1974. On the other hand... If anyone's going to take it on, the combo of Jodorowsky and Dan O'Bannon just sounds... I mean, either that or we'd be talking about the... Like, it's very possible that we would be talking about the falling apart of it once it did get the money. Or the how Jodorowsky murdered Dan O'Bannon because he couldn't do what he wanted him to do. I don't know. Like, there's all kinds of things that could have happened. I just think if anyone was going to take this on at the time, I actually think there's a strong possibility they'd come up with something. But based upon, like... The time period and what was available, yeah. There's a I I feel the skepticism. I understand the skepticism that people might have felt of like, can you even do this well? But I don't know. Like the the idea that he would have gone at it from a different direction. I just think there's so many possibilities there. Like maybe he didn't need to reinvent the wheel in, in in a technical sense. Maybe thematically there would have been something that we didn't see coming. I don't, I don't know. But, uh, but it's just like, it's hard for me to believe that nothing happened, that there wasn't something, you know what I mean? Like, sure. just because there's so much potential there. I will say the fact that they, he approached Douglas Trumbull first with the idea that, I don't know if he wanted necessarily the special effects to look like the special effects in 2001 or silent running or whatever, but that yeah. he had this idea of getting the best special effects guy possible who has had the reputation of bringing the impossible to life. Right. So, I mean, he obviously took it very seriously, the level of special effects that had to be created. But, I mean, when you think about Star Wars, which, I mean, it's impossible not to think about Star Wars simply because by the time that this movie fell apart, that's what people were getting into was Star Wars. But the the difficulties that... that George Lucas had getting that movie together and all the special effects creation that came out of it. I just wonder where, if all of that creation existed two years before in a very different form, you just have to wonder what the following 10, 15, 20 years of Hollywood movies may have looked like. Yeah. So that's kind of, yeah, I know. It's just, it's, it, it, that is one of the things I get so frustrated when I hear people talk about the documentary or the project in these negative ways, which not everyone is. Most of the reaction is very positive, but there's some kind of notable reactions that are very negative. Some of the points I think are very well made, but to me it's like ambition is something to be applauded. And Mm -hmm. yeah, look, maybe this is a very special circumstance of an artist who had the right collaborators and money and maybe just about and was on the edge and the cusp of doing something, hey, I don't care if the movie was great. I don't care if it was good. The very fact that something like this could have existed is enough justification in my own mind. It's just right. money. <laughs> well, and it's it's in, it's it's so interesting in and of itself. I mean, there are other decisions I don't understand. Like, I'll, I'll tell you what. It's such a big point, not just in his narrative, but in the documentary about him getting Dali. I could yeah. not give a... I could not give possibly less of a fuck about Dolly being in this movie. I get the appeal. I get why it mattered to him. And I, I even enjoy some aspects of their struggle with each other. But the idea that the movie rested on Dolly as the emperor, I'm like, that's the like literally the least interesting choice that you made to me. I think a lot of these other choices were more interesting to me. And yet that doesn't matter. It doesn't make the story less interesting. I'm not like the movie would have sucked because Salvador Dali was in it. It's just one of the decisions he made that I'm confused by, but it makes 
the story of what happened more interesting because Jesus, that's a lot of work to get this one old <laughs> painter to be in your movie. But maybe that would have been, I mean, if the movie existed, that might have been one of the things that sold it. Who knows? But I feel like this is also a very Hollywood cautionary tale, right? Because you look at this yes, list, you yes. look at the people on this list and you're like, how could, how could this not have been made? If you bring, you know, by all accounts, the Dune book they made was stupendous. You see these names on this list. You see Jagger, sure. you see Wells, you see Dali, you see Elaine Delon, who, which we haven't even talked about because, oh my mm -hmm. God, he was supposed to be in it. Jesus Christ. Um, and, and and still Hollywood's like, no, thanks. And you're like, wait, what? How did that, how is that possible? But Hollywood's weird. Like, it's not always about the creativity. It's a lot of times about how much money we'll make and this is going to cost more than we want to spend, which is so stupid, right? Like, how could anyone say no to this piece of art and yet it happened? I think a lot of it has to do as well uh, with the idea of when it comes to someone like Dali, someone who's never appeared in a motion picture before, the, someone who took all of this effort just to agree to be this tiny part in the film and get paid this ridiculous sum for it, the very fact that it was impossible to do that Jodorowsky had somehow made possible, I think just gave him more ambition regarding I'm yeah, I can I make agree. the impossible possible. That's what this movie is. I make so again, just reinforcing what the disappointment must have been. I mean, it's I, I'm with you to a certain extent, Liam. Like it feels like almost kind of a waste of money, even though uh, obviously Jodorowsky thought of Dolly as. Uh, whether a hero of his or someone that he very much looked up to, the someone that that he that was very important to him, and and meant that meant that it was kind of a personal gesture to have him in the film. In some ways, I think the story of pursuing him was as important as having him in the movie. You know I what agree. I mean? I agree. <laughs> that it's all part of it. And that's that's why the documentary to me is really fascinating because the story is part of the film. All of this would have come out as the film was coming out. If the film had been made, all these stories still would have existed. So it would have just been part of the larger myth of the movie. Instead, a lot of this got tabled and people didn't even really hear about it outside of, you know, uh, interviews and, and uh, essays and things like that. I will say that I'm one of the people, and I'm a little embarrassed to say it, that when I saw Jodorowsky's Dune at the Toronto International Film Festival, the story was almost entirely new to me. I just did not know that all of this had almost happened. And I think that a lot of people felt uh, a, a similar way at the time, uh, maybe just attuned to my ignorance. I mean, all I knew was that he had tried to make it. The details right. were nothing to me. I, I had no idea. And that's, I think, the the documentary, I mean, we'll get to talking more about the documentary, but one of the things I'll say in advance is just, it, it's, it, it's going to be interesting in and of itself because the story is so interesting that it's also pretty well made, but the story itself is so good. It, it would be really hard to, you'd have to go out of your way. I think to make the story not interesting, you'd yeah. have to find a way to film it. That was a really, a real screw up because it's just such an amazing tale, you know? So let's talk about this cast a little bit. Uh, you already referring to Alain Delon uh, could have been in the film. Julia, the name is not even mentioned. They don't even mention that in the documentary. Also, no, we it's didn't talk crazy. about that. We yeah. didn't talk about Gloria Swanson. We didn't talk Gloria about Swanson. Geraldine Chaplin and Hervey Fellow right. Chase. Like, what the hey? Yeah, there are there are names attached to this uh, that that yeah don't even get a, a conversation or even a, a word uh, in the documentary. Which again just goes to show, I guess, the scope of of some of the 
the uh, the the uh, events that were going on leading up to the attempted creation of this film. The actors that we do know about uh, include Orson Welles, who was meant to play the Baron. Salvador Dali was meant to play the Emperor in the film. Fade Routha was going to be played by Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger, it, interestingly, another rock star would end up playing that same character in David Lynch's Dune, uh, Sting, oh, as we yeah. mentioned earlier. David Carradine was going to play Duke Leto. Uh, Gloria Swanson as Bene Gesserit, Reverend Mother. Uh, Udo Kier was going to be in the film. Amanda Lear, the uh, the the muse of Salvador Dali, was going to be in the film. And as we've already mentioned, Brontus Jodorowsky was going to star as Paul. And uh, one of the most fascinating things about the documentary was learning about the efforts that uh, Jodorowsky had his son go through in order to play this character. It seemed like he was actually trying to bring this character from the book to life to a certain extent made his you know his son basically trained for two years straight he went through all this martial arts training he was being toughened up i mean basically put through torture i mean remembering that this kid is only 12 years old at the time and and all in service of a movie that would never be made just want to get your thoughts on that starting with you julia knowing that you're a big brontus fan anyway (laughs) uh i mean is this too much to ask of an actor, especially one that didn't necessarily have any choice in the matter to uh, to go through in order to be the star of this movie? I mean, I feel like this is kind of what it would be like to be Jodorowsky's son in a nutshell, right? Yeah, it's right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the one hand, he's going to you know put you as the star of his film and like make this big thing about you, and you're you're the star, and I'm sure he tells you that all the time. But then also. I'm now taking away your childhood. You only get to train seven days a week and this is what you do. And I feel like it's both of those things, right? You have this father who's a genius, but he's also this really hard taskmaster. Mm-hmm. And so I think you would probably waffle between those two points of view. But yes, as you said, I'm a huge Brontus fan. His performance in Dance Reality should have won all the awards because it's stupendous. And I feel like even as a kid, I'm sure he would have killed it. Like I have no doubt he could have carried this movie on his shoulders. No problem. You know, like all of his sons are so incredible. And I I know I'm sure it's unpleasant. I'm sure he pushes you hard on set. But, you know, he does get the performances that are just mind blowing. So, you know, there's a part of me that's very sad for Brontus, you know, to not be able to see this performance and also that he did it all for nothing, you know, and like how heartbroken must he have been? And like he's 14 and he's got to deal with this heartbreak. Uh, Imagine being a a child of. Alejandro Jodorowsky and then deciding that you want to be like an accountant or something like that as opposed <laughs> to some sort of artist it just seems impossible to come out of that uh, situation in any way but some sort of, I mean and a lot of art com- has come uh, from his his children um, even outside of Brontus in this case Julie do you have any thoughts on the cast as a whole uh, you know Liam was mentioning his kind of little bit of confusion about Salvador Dali and the importance of having him included any of the names on this list that you would love to have seen in this film See, I think Salvador Dali is pretty inspired, honestly. And I think, sure. like, if, who, who, as, as the emperor of the universe, you're like, I could see someone as batty as Dali being the emperor of the universe and just making crazy decisions for no reason. And, like, that's sure. why the world works the way it does. Mm-hmm. I see that. And I feel like you have to remember that Jodorowsky has surrealist roots, right? So, of course, Absolutely. he's got to be a huge hero to him. So, I'm sure that's a big, a big, like, I feel like they would just try to out crazy each other the whole time though and then it would just be this kind of like world like i kind of want to see like a documentary about that like if that had happened um i think this cast list is incredible david carradine is kind of an odd one out for me like i sometimes finds good feels good carradine feels a little weird um everybody else i'm su- i mean orson wells obviously jagger into it like all of it and again elaine delon high on my list uh and to see gloria swanson be like i i feel like I don't know if Gloria Swanson would fully understand what she was doing 
in as the Reverend Mother, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, maybe. You would have to like really explain what's going on. Like, was she going to read it? Is she the person who's going to read Dune? I hope she would do her research. It's funny because if I was to think, well, what's, who's the actor that should be working with Jodorowsky? Udo Kier is probably like the first name that would come yeah, to my mind. Yeah. Be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Of course he's going to be in a movie that Jodorowsky is making. Uh, it seems like it would just have been a natural uh, kind of uh, progression of uh, what was going on here. Liam, what your thoughts on the cast? Any thoughts on uh, either Brontus or any of the other people that were meant to be in the film? Oh, I mean, I agree. I think Brontus would be great. And I, yeah, I don't know what to make of the the training other than to say, like, this seems like what it would be like to have Jodorowsky as a father. <laughs> uh, it's funny, Julia, you said about David Carradine. I actually, I, I don't know. I, I Maybe it's my view of Duke Leto, but I kind of appreciate Carradine as Leto. And, and, and maybe that's just... I I think he would bring something to that role, honestly. But um, I think that overall, the cast feels like a Jodorowsky cat. You know, it's him reaching for certain kinds of people because of what he has in mind. And again, I just maybe it's just me feeling like I I always I I feel the same way about his paintings. I I just feel like Dali is like just not all he's cracked up to be <laughs> but then again the the more i think about it i think julia's point about them out weirding each other on set that might have actually made the movie better honestly mm-hmm. so maybe maybe that is an inspired choice but i don't know part of me thinks I, I i there's a small part of me that thinks if the movie got its budget and ended up on set would the story be about yodorowsky like driving like would this be more like um like what's his name trying to make the man of La Mancha? Uh, uh, oh, Gilliam? you mean Terry Gilliam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man would of this, La Mancha. Yeah, would this be would this be more about him losing his shit on set? I don't know. Like I don't know what it would have been like <laughs> to work with all these people. Like I mean, we're we're assuming that the, this cast would be amazing. I don't know if they would all be amazing to work with. Like, what would it be? Like, huge ego against huge ego. Yeah. Right? You put like, Orson Welles against Mick Jagger, and you go fight. Who wins? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because they're in a bunch of scenes together, right? Like, you're going to put Orson Welles and Mick Jagger in a room, and they're going to act with each other. That could have been amazing, or it could have been hell on earth. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a really interesting thing to think about. I, I, I'm kind of with you in the David Carradine front, Liam, simply because in, in the mid-'70s at this era, kind of bound for glory era, David Carradine. He was doing a lot of interesting things. I do think that he was pushing himself a little bit. And it isn't a role that necessarily has to bring a lot of, you know, charisma. I mean, it would be nice. And that isn't <laughs> well, to say that David Carradine... we don't Car- charisma, so uh, what we call David Carradine? <laughs> well, what I mean is that it doesn't have to be kind of an arresting performance that is center stage in the film. I just think that he does provide a lot of support that would be kind of, of useful. And he has a lot of strength, which I guess that character is supposed to kind of envelop more than other things. There's a part of me that thinks Dolly was never going to be in the movie. You know? Like, it just wasn't going to happen simply because he was so difficult in all of the uh, discussions leading up to it that that the goalposts would just kind of move to the point where he would never end up in it. And in fact, there's a part of me that thinks that Jodorowsky himself would have ended up playing that emperor simply because it seems like the role that he, of course, would put himself into. Say, if oh, he was oh making- nobody's going to play this role. Well, I'll just have to step Guess in. Yes, I'll just I have mean- to step in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to be the emperor of the yeah. entire universe. It's, honestly, it's, it's a little flummoxing. He didn't just give himself that part to begin with. 
Yeah, especially knowing that it's such a small part in the grand scheme of of the work. Yeah, it, it just seems like that would have made some some bit of sense. Maybe it's just because he didn't want to be uh, bested by his own son at the end of the project. That's very if, true. Because I was going to say, you have you know, he's like you give him El Topo and you get him in Holy Mountain. It's like he's already get himself as like I am the master of the universe in all of his roles anyway. So it's like it just kind of creates the through line for those movies. If you want to hear more about the stories of how these actors almost appeared in the film, of course, we'll point you towards that documentary. But now I'd like to talk a little bit about how Dune collapsed. So in late 1975, we've been referring to this already, Jodorowsky Institute flew to Los Angeles and they had their Dune Bible, this giant book that included the Girard storyboards, the designs by Giger and Foss and O'Bannon, and it had the screenplay included with it. And basically... They shopped it around different studios in Hollywood in order to drum up the final $5 million they needed so that they could make the film. And as Sidhu says in the documentary, everything was great except the director. At least that's what the perspective was uh, um, in terms of of the people involved with the film at the time. Uh, This is what uh, Jodorowsky had to say about that period in his life from his uh, his essay in Metal Herlan. The Dune Project changed our life. When it was over, O'Bannon entered a psychiatric hospital. Afterwards, he returned to the fight with rage and wrote 12 scripts which were refused. The 13th one was Alien. Like him, all those who took part in the rise and fall of the Dune Project learned how to fall one and 1,000 times with savage obstinacy until learning how to stand. I remember my old father who, while dying happy, said to me, My son, in my life, I triumph because I learned how to fail. Jodorowsky certainly learned how to fail in this particular case, though I imagine it was a very difficult thing to have to come to terms with. This idea that even though you have all of the parts of the movie, to the point where someone could take those materials and just make the movie without Jodorowsky's involvement whatsoever, but that when it came to trying to get it made, trying to get those $5 million to make the film, that it was the director that was the biggest problem. Do you think, both of you, that that was enough? Like, that was the reason that they were... um, that, they, that they, it was refused? Or was it actually a bigger concept? Was it something like the fact that he wanted the movie to be 8 to 10 to 12 hours or and that he might have like really held firm against that and the fact that maybe they didn't believe that this movie could be made with the technology of the time or any other number of reasons? Uh, starting with you, Julia, was the director the problem here? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I can visualize Jodorowsky going into a Hollywood meeting and freaking them out, freaking them out, <laughs> freaking them out. Right. And they're like, we're not going to give money to these madmen. Like, of course they're not. And like, that's why it's great. His movies are so fantastic because he doesn't ever compromise his vision. Right. It's just what he wants. And mm-hmm. so this is now, it's not what he wants. It's what all of the producers want. So I think even if it would have started to get made, it would have been very difficult because he's not used to having Hollywood money come in and tell him what to do, which they would have done. So I think that would have been an uneasy alliance. And you think of someone like, yes, Lynch's films are mad, but as a person, he's quite soft-spoken, right? Sure. He's not arresting. And Jordan Browski is just like a whirlwind coming in here and just being insane, right? And that's what I love about him. But I can see how if I was like, I need to give this guy $5 million. Ooh, I don't know. Like, he seems like he might just go crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's so, but it's, the, you know, it's that genius madman split where you have to put your faith in that and go, okay, he can do what he says he's, he's going to do because I see his previous films and clearly he can go big. So I, you know, I, of course, as the Hollywood suit would give him the money, but that's beside the point, you know. I, I think this actually does go back to that art versus commerce idea, which is that this is a person in Jodorowsky who at that point had encountered a lot of artists and using the depth of his charisma, the depth of his kind of charm, he was able to convince people to do things that otherwise they wouldn't do. So if he's getting, you know, Orson Welles to be in his movie, you know, he, he's this kind of almost like a... Um, 
uh, a trickster type character, right? Where he's mm-hmm. he, he he's so playful and he has ways of making people do these things. It's something we've heard about in a lot of the interviews in the films that we've discussed up to this point. But now he flies to L.A. and he's talking to producers and hardcore capitalists and people who are just looking at the bottom line and they're looking at how much difficulty is this going to be? How much trouble is this director going to be for me if I want a return in my investment? And maybe those kind of people just we're never going to let Dune be made, uh, or at least not with the, their money. Liam, your thoughts on that? Was the director the issue here? Yeah, but I think uh, I want to specifically say that uh, I think Julia has a point about him being crazy. I think <laughs> I think I want to lean more on the idea that you're starting to say, which is them wanting some sense of control. Like right. I don't, I I think that if he showed up and was eccentric, and they believed that they could pressure him to do what they wanted because I think there's a we I think a, a lot of projects that fall through we hear about directors who have crazy ideas and producers say yes because they assume that when it comes down to it they're going to get their way because they're the fucking producers they're the money and so at some point they're going to pressure whoever it is to do it their way I I suspect it is the director but in the sense that they were like He's not gonna. Li- he's gonna do whatever yeah. he wants, mm-hmm. and and then w- this thing that because I think they hear it and he says it's gonna cost this many million dollars. It's gonna be fourteen hour movie, and <laughs> Dali is gonna piss and shit <laughs> on screen. What they're what they're really hearing, and I think this is true in a lot of meetings, is they're hearing yeah yeah yeah, but not really because we're gonna get what I want, which is right, what right. I because the, you know I'm I'm the one who knows what people actually want, and I think with when they met Yodorowsky, what they met is someone who they thought you know, he's going to do whatever he wants and we're Mm -hmm. not going to have control of this thing. And I think it's that... That fear, because I think there are other directors. Uh, like, well, let's be clear: there's no director like Yudorowsky, but I think there are other directors who were also a risk that people took risks, took chances on them because they thought there's something creative here that we could benefit from that we need to control, and that's our job. Our job is to take this creative force and mold it in a more reasonable direction so we get our fucking money. And I think they just felt like, well, we can't do that. Like that's not going to happen here. And, and I almost wonder if the Bible, you know, the Dune Bible that they showed up with was probably also a barrier like oh you figured out all the details well then where can i cut corners where can i pressure you where can i say let's cut this part or let's not do this part you've got a whole vision here and i gotta be on board for the whole sandwich i can't make any alterations there's no mustard instead of mayo i gotta swallow this whole thing i wonder if that was part of the fear of it all of like you know, to what extent is this just we're along for the ride writing checks and we get no input? I think, though, I want to say, like, I I feel there's that camaraderie that I feel that even though I mean, I know that obviously Jodorowsky is the linchpin to all of this holding it together, but that the producers and the, and the cast weren't offered someone else. Right. right if it really right. was the yeah. destructive, they're like, well, we can't do it with him, but we'll do it with somebody else. But That's everybody, true. you know, stuck behind him. We're like, no, we do it all together or we don't do it at all. So I think there's kind of like a faithfulness and a loyalty there that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I agree. I wonder also if it just comes down to how far apart his brain (laughs) is from the the post-Jaws summer movie view of what blockbuster filmmaking would have been at that time. So the idea that they come to him and we're like, okay, we'll give you the money. But of course, the movie's got to be like two hours, like two and a half hours at most, that sort of thing. And he's like, 10 hours. 12 hours, right? Like, like the distance between those expectations are so wide that even if you were getting to cut him down to six hours, it would still be like three times as long as what they want. So, I mean, it, to me, it's, 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 
it goes back to the lack of compromise. Maybe it's just not something he was used to doing, but what you will see when Jodorowsky is talking about whether it be Lynch's Dune, whether it be the the uh, upcoming version of Dune, is that he his biggest criticism is that this is a Hollywood movie. This is a Hollywood system movie. Yeah. You can see the compromises that they had to make, and I wonder in some ways is that Jodorowsky's, uh, you know, his artistic vision coming through, and also on the other side, recognizing that his failure came down to the same idea that these people had to go through and were in some way successful in maneuvering, even if the films could be of <laughs> differing quality, let's say. That said, I want to get your take just very quickly, Julia. Would you sit down and watch a 10-hour adaptation of Dune directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky? Uh, is it all at one, all at once? Or is all at like once! Over? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I would. I mean, I've sat for 24 hours and watched movies straight, so, like, you know, I can't be broken. 10 hours mm. of Jodorowsky, bring mm. it on. Bring me some snacks, some like delicious drinks. I'm on board. I'll I want to walk out of no <laughs> I, I want to walk out of that theater dehydrated and okay. spent and feeling like I will like not even be able to function in society for at least a week. Liam, would you sit there for ten hours watch uh, Jodorowsky's Dune? I mean, I need an intermission or two to go pee, but yeah, no so intermissions. <laughs> no, I, I mean, then I'll be there in the theater, but uh, probably once every couple hours, I'll have to get up to pee and miss a few minutes. You know, one of the things that people love about 1970s cinema is the idea that they were a little director focused, right? That directors had a little bit more power, that producers weren't as um, uh, insidious in terms of their effect on a lot of different films. And that did change in the later part of the 70s. But it is something that I like a lot about a lot of 1970s cinema. I wonder, Liam, if Jodorowsky's Dune had been a huge smash. It comes out, it's, it breaks all these records, it becomes a Star Wars-like hit. What changes after that? Are directors going to be given more freedom? Does it, does it, uh, you know, do we get auteur based blockbusters for the following decade, at least until the producers, <laughs> you hit one failure and then they're like, no, we're, we're stepping in here. But what's, what does Hollywood look like in 1978, 79, 80 if Jodorowsky's Dune is a huge success? I don't know. My 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 inclination is to say something more positive, like more creative, more whatever. Maybe Dune loses a ton of money and then <laughs> people say no to other projects in the future. It's hard to say. You're, um, you're thinking of it if, if it came out, yeah, and it was a failure. As yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that's what happens. I, I'm not sure, but my my hope is that we'd have an, a much more open, creative place. Although, who knows? The, the, there's other movies that came out that were also amazing that then didn't change the entire fabric of Hollywood. So maybe what would happen yeah. is just a little bit more stuff would be creative, not a lot. Yeah, I guess I can see what you're saying. If instead of this being a massive success, what if it was the Heaven's Gate of that decade and it ends up like hurting other filmmakers even more who were trying to have a kind of a creative foothold? Oh, I think time? of it exactly opposite. Like, I think I mentally remove George Lucas and insert Jodorowsky. Sure, and then yeah, I, see a yeah, yeah. I see a beautiful world, right? I see a world where people are really interested in talking about their own vision and their own personal experiences of humor and, and aren't afraid to be honest and open and it doesn't have to be this blockbuster you know cookie cutter nonsense you're also letting in foreign directors into the mainstream as well That's which true. is going to open true. up a whole other world so i feel like it would be a a, a, a mind expanding experience i kind of want to hop over to that alternate universe and see how it exists over there in fact, that foreign aspect is one of the things that Jodorowsky said was the reason that the film was never made. Right. Uh, this is, again, from his uh, essay, Dune, the film you'll never see from Heavy Metal, a.k.a. Metal Herland. Me, I like to fight for Dune. Almost all the battles were won, but the war was lost. 
The project was sabotaged in Hollywood. It was French and not American. Its message was not enough Hollywood. There were intrigues, plundering. The storyboard circulated among all the large studios. Later, the visual aspect of Star Wars resembled our style. To make Alien, they invited Mobius, Foss, Giger, O'Bannon, etc. The project announced to America the possibility of carrying out science fiction films to a large spectacle and out of the scientific rigor of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And the film notes, as he was just mentioning, that Jodorowsky's script and the storyboards and concept art were sent to all the major film studios and then... As, rather controversially, the the movie suggests that that influence is found in some of the films that Jodorowsky just mentioned, as well as Flash Gordon, the Terminator series, the Fifth Fifth Element, etc., etc., etc. I want. I think it's impossible to deny that Alien wouldn't be Alien without Jodorowsky's doing. There's just too many of those those major figures that were involved in that production that ended up in Alien to say that that it would have looked the same otherwise. What do you think about some of these other suggestions that 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 a lot of these visual elements ended up uh, and not just the visual elements, but even the ideas ended up influencing a lot of Hollywood science fiction and fantasy filmmaking over the following decade? Starting with you, Julia, when you saw that in the documentary, was that something that seemed very plausible to you? Uh, it it does. I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like Hollywood is very uh, lazy, right? And if you're like, oh, we already have these, look at these beautiful sketches. They're already done. Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't have to do anything. Oh, what if we just, and those movies never get made, so it's not like anybody's going to come after us or anything. So, and if it's, you know, if you know it's at the studios, I feel like that's very plausible. On the other hand, uh, Jordan Rowski does like to kind of believe that he had invented everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember when he was talking about the, when he had the commentary for Holy Mountain, he was like, the nail polish I'm wearing in that, I was yes. the first person who did that. I did that. And I was like, really? Are you really the first person who did nail polish? I'm not sure about that. But I like that you think so. <laughs> so I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I do think that there's some support in the... Uh, uh, rather notoriously, when The Fifth Element came out, I believe Jodorowsky uh, and... Mobius actually were in the either sued or were going to sue Luc Besson for that film because of some of the design elements. And then Besson ended up hiring Mobius to work on the film, which ended up having it fall apart. Uh, it, it Depending on whose account of it you read, uh, Jodorowsky was either pissed about that or he said he was not involved with it or he said that he was happy that someone was ripping him off. Depending on what day of the week it was, I suppose, Jodorowsky's response was somewhat uh, uh, varied. I think the idea, the general idea of what he was saying, which is that they were French, they had all this great material, but the people that they were talking to, they weren't interested in making it in their way. So what they did is they took parts of it, they they scavenged it, and used the parts that they wanted from it in their way. Uh, and because you couldn't necessarily trace those influences exactly, it's hard to make kind of a one-to-one, you know, this created this, this created this. But the influence, you know, it, it very much has that kind of butterfly effect where it just goes forward and it expands outwards and outwards and outwards. And it's funny that we were just talking about what if this movie was a huge success? How would Hollywood have changed afterwards? The fact is, even in its current form, it managed to have a massive effect, uh, presumably, on Hollywood and the biggest blockbusters that came out over the following decade, 20 years, and right up till today. So you know, you can't really ignore those influences. And the fact is, even if it was just a direct influence on Alien, that movie is a big enough movie in the context of Hollywood blockbusters that it would kind of reverberate outwards. Liam, any thoughts on the influence of Jodorowsky's failed Dune? I mean, I think we covered most of it. I, the, 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 the sequence in, in the documentary is a little 
broad for me. Like yeah. some of the connections are very clear. I really do think like some of the costume designs in Flash Gordon, I'm like, come on, that's the same fucking design. But uh, some of the other stuff, like even this, you know, he's taking credit for the scene in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think I think it's easier to say it was hugely influential in that way if we remove the idea of, of ripping off, which isn't to say that no one ripped it off. But I do think that uh, it also could have been influential on people who just like it became part of how they think, because I think that's how anyone creates. Whatever Jodorowsky is creating with Mobius in those things is being influenced by costumes from other people, ideas from other things. Like it, it, it all sort of amalgamates together. So I, 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 while I do suspect there are probably people in Hollywood who directly ripped it off on purpose, there's probably people who were influenced by it who, you know, weren't in the, you know, in, in the costuming or in the set design saying, oh, you know what? I saw this thing called dude i saw this bible for a movie that never happened let's do it like that it might have just been something that like stayed in their brain i'm i i'm convinced there are things like that i have in my life that i don't even know where they came from you know i also wonder how much influence something like the Incall ended up having i mean it started to be published in the in the early 80s and a lot of this work would have come afterwards i mean those designs were popular enough and had enough influence that they could have also worked out into the consciousness of the people making films at that time period it's just it just, it just, you know, it's the cosmic stew. It all kind of fits together. I want to mention at this point that a week from the release of this episode, we actually are going to be releasing another, a bonus Jodorowsky episode, uh, focusing on an interview that we did with Frank Pavich, the director of Jodorowsky's Dune. Uh, he gave us a lot of great stories about uh, interacting with Jodorowsky directly, about some of the making of that film. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. Uh, so... Here, I would like to talk just briefly about that documentary, because I, get, I think it's the entry point for a lot of people's interest in this project as a whole. But if you want more detail on our thoughts on it, if you want to get uh, some thoughts from the director and some of the difficulties he ran into and some of the kind of long-term effects looking back over the past decade since he started working on the docu- documentary, I'll point you towards that interview. But uh, really just kind of keeping it simple here, Jodorowsky's Dune 2014, as I mentioned, I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival. I was blown away by it. Uh, I found the response to it was generally, I mean, it it was overwhelmingly positive, but there was some negative response as well. Uh, Julia, what are your thoughts on that documentary, Jodorowsky's Doom? I think it's fantastic. Um, I was already a fan of his before the documentary and then this, but I had never heard about this failed project. And so, you know, it's always such a deliciousness to think about a project made by someone you love that never got made, right? You know, you have Orson Welles with all of his woes throughout Hollywood. Like, although I want to see all those films though. So it's that kind of thing. And I think it's a very well-made documentary and it feel like it really introduces people because, you know, you get, you get him as a character in his films, but you don't get him as himself, right? And so this is him as himself and you see what his personality is like as a person. And he's just such a passionate speaker that you just can't help be drawn in by him. Like the charisma, like the Dan O'Banion has a story about like these, he's like lightning bolt coming out of his, out of his head. And yeah. I'm like, I can mm-hmm. see that man. Like I imagine if I met him and like shook his hand, that exact same thing would happen to me. And I would just be like, Ooh, he's <laughs> superhuman craziness. But just watching him talk is like, and you can see why everybody would, be drawn to him and want to do this project because if you see someone talk about something with such passion of course you want to be a part of that like that makes it so much fun so i think that you know it's 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 a really cool documentary to see him but then to also see all of these other pieces that kind of fall into place and everybody else's version of the story one of the things that you'll walk away from that documentary thinking is that jodorowsky is the star right he is he is such a magnetic 
performer, yeah, yeah. and, and performer might be the wrong word, but a presence in that documentary that you can see how it kind of reinvigorated his career afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe I went a little far in that uh, interview, you know, kind of uh, attributing that directly. Oh, I to, don't think you Frank. did at all. I but, think you're but, right on the money. But at the very least, the the making of that documentary brought Michelle Sadu and uh, Jodorowsky back together again, which led to the projects that he's been working on since, or, or at least his return to filmmaking. So, I mean, uh, without Jodorowsky's Dune, a lot of the work that we've seen from Jodorowsky over the past decade, it might look very different, or a lot of it might not exist at all. So, I mean, at the very least, I think that the effect of the documentary was a very positive one. As I said before, a lot of, of strange and varied responses to the documentary, particularly when yeah. it comes to whether the film... Dune that was to come from Jodorowsky would have been a good film or not, which is, as you mentioned, Liam, to me, I feel the same way. That's I don't care at all. I don't give a shit. A, I think it would be interesting. So interesting to me is better than good in a lot of cases anyway. But also good is is a measure that is <laughs> a massive, epic, big swing failure to me is way more interesting than a success that is safe and uh, expected and predictable, you know? Agreed. Yeah, so, agreed. So, so, and, and, and at the very least, you will come out of Jodorowsky's Dune knowing that this is a, a man with ambition who is trying to make something very, very different. Liam, I know that you actually, you know, are somewhat close to Frank, so I don't want you to uh, be put on the spot regarding your feelings on the documentary, but any kind of summary on your, on your thoughts of it uh, in, just in general? Well, like any documentary, there's people who are telling the story, and there are people who are talking about why the story matters. Yes. If I was going to make any criticism, I find the people telling the story far more interesting than the people commenting on why the story matters. Sure. I think at the time it made sense, but uh, rewatching the movie, I you know, in, in preparation for talking to Frank, I watched it for the probably like fifth or sixth time just like because I was so into it for so long uh, just thinking about it. um, I think that I'm not convinced the people talking about the story add as much to the, to the movie as I would want them to, if that's their, their role. And I think that's the only thing that having watched it a few times sort of sticks out to me. Uh, But if people want to know like, well, well, what did you think the first time you thought saw it, they can find my review on the internet in which I'm convinced it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. (laughs) Now, having watched it a few times, I don't know if I'd put it in like the, the, top echelon documentaries of all time but it's very good and and i think it's a yet another documentary that pushes this question of like it you know it, it sounds easy but i actually think it's hard to make a good documentary that works as a documentary when the story is so overwhelmingly interesting that right. there's almost a danger you could get in the way of telling mm-hmm. this story you could try to you could try to over direct the story the story is good enough on its own it doesn't really need you to like jazz it up it just needs you to like let it breathe and let it be what it is because it is so interesting so i think he does a great job of that and you know you're right i i've talked to frank enough i, I do consider him a friend so uh you know but i i do understand like some very few criticisms maybe i think ring ring true i think a lot of people some for some reason judge the documentary based upon whether they personally think they would like Jodorowsky's <laughs> dude or not right. which is like again not the fucking point so i don't understand that at all or even judging it on whether you like Jodorowsky or not. Right. right? That's, As if that's you not need really to... the point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's... it's. I don't want to be dismissive of the criticisms of the documentary or even the idea of the film. There is a uh, article, a very popular one out there, called Jodorowsky's Dune Didn't Get Made for a Reason and We Should All Be Grateful by Emmett Asher Perrin. And reading it, I don't agree with all of the points made in it. It does bring up uh, Jodorowsky's, you know... Uh, 
apocryphal tale of sexual assault on his set. And, and I mean, that's, again, I'm not being dismissive of that either. We've talked about it at length on this podcast. And I think that we both have kind of come, we have all, both, all of us have kind of come to terms on our thoughts on that. But, you know, on the wider criticisms of the, the fact that it's kind of an overwhelmingly male project that is about overwhelmingly male privilege, the idea that a purely artistic pursuit uh, that 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 was that the movie is championing that championing that above all else. Again, I don't want to summarize it. I'll actually leave a link to it in our show notes. Uh, both of you have read it, Julie. Do you have any thoughts on that uh, on that essay? I'd say everybody's welcome to their opinion. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I, it's I it does feel like a article that has an agenda which i guess i guess all of them do i, I guess I, that's that shouldn't be a criticism on my part but it does feel in some ways like the technical side of the documentary that the author dislikes uh which is that there is not much female representation in the in it, which is something that that is bothers me and i know that we've voiced that as well Liam, as something that that is a notable thing about the film that there that that not only are there a few female talking heads, but also the collaborators that Jodorowsky had put together was exclusively male. That that alone could be enough to make you think that um, this is a film with a point of view that you wouldn't necessarily jive with. Though there's a lot in this essay that I feel like feels kind of hit PC. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, I I, I don't. Uh... I think that the like you said, it, it, I, it's not a problem that there's a, a specific agenda per se. I just know that it's not where I'm coming from. Uh, but I do think, in retrospect, if if I could have been one of the advisors, I'd say, well, you know, it would help if if for the people who are setting the context, if there were female voices as well, because it is overwhelmingly male. I don't think we could have predicted how problematic those male versus voices are at the time. Right, right, right. But that's but, kind of a different issue. Yeah, so. that's a whole other issue to me. To me, the main issue is just, if I was thinking about the voices I would have, I just, and, and this is just my perspective in general, I prefer diversity. And it doesn't, again, this is leads back to my other criticism, which is that, uh, I don't know. For my taste, I'm not sure that the the commentators we have who aren't part of the story add a whole lot. I felt like if if they were saying something that I thought was really important, then maybe I would feel slightly differently. But they're not my favorite parts of the movie anyway. So I, I feel like other there, there there might be a way to mitigate some concerns if we had a more diverse group of people speaking. Um, but I also think like part of the movie to me is. Uh, the reality of like the the magic of who Jodorowsky is. So I, I, I'm guessing here. I haven't asked Frank about this, but my guess is it, it's so about telling this story. We're pro- he probably wasn't thinking about you know he he got people to be on it who were interested in being on it, and he wasn't thinking about like representation per se. That like oh well maybe I should have different kinds of folks than I have on here. He was more like I can't believe Jodorowsky wanted to talk to me about this because I think there's a sense in the movie itself of wonder that. We're telling this story, and and it, just the magic of him bringing together Jodorowsky and Sadu, I'm sure, was something in and of itself. The other main criticism of Jodorowsky's Dune usually has to do with the fidelity of Jodorowsky to the source material. I'm just going to leave it with a quote from Jodorowsky himself. I did not want to respect the novel. I wanted to recreate it. For me, Dune did not belong to Herbert, as Don Quixote did not belong to Cervantes, nor Oedipo with Esquilo. So Jodorowsky, not interested in necessarily... Um, 
bringing the absolute truth of the material, the absolute uh, text to life. Uh, it just wasn't something that he was interested in doing. And in fact, I wouldn't want to see Jodorowsky just, you know, start having the characters speak the lines exactly as they were in the book. That's not what I would want out of a Jodorowsky project in general. Uh, finishing up our look at the unfortunately failed project of Jodorowsky's Dune. There were, of course, adaptations of Dune that came out uh, in the years uh, since uh, that project failed in the late 70s, including, of course, David Lynch's Dune. According to the biography Five Easy Decades, Jack Nicholson at one point was considering directing a version of Dune, uh, but decided that would be too much of an undertaking. Maybe knowing about the Jodorowsky project played a part in that. Um, Quite notably, in the documentary, we find out Jodorowsky's thoughts on David Lynch's Dune. Uh, in an IndieWire uh, interview from just last year, he said about that uh, project, the first time that it was safe to do Dune and David Lynch did it, I was ill because it was my dream. They showed the picture in Paris and my son said, you need to see the picture. I was ill to do that. Ill, Jodorowsky said. And then they start to show the picture and step by step, I was so happy, so happy, so happy because it was a shitty picture. I realized Dune, nobody can do it. It's a legend, which, I mean, maybe maybe he's right, though we're going to see someone take another big swing at it in the very near future. Uh, I, I, we've already talked a little bit about that David Lynch adaptation. As I said, I just recently watched the extended edition for the first time. It is quite a trip. It is quite visually stunning at times, and it is at times completely incomprehensible, even in that lengthy form, though uh, a lot of that might have to do with the fact that, that the version I saw wasn't a David Lynch vision in any way. It was taken away from him, of course, and edited at that point. There's also the Sci-Fi Network uh, adaptation, uh, the miniseries adaptation in the year 2000. I watched a little bit of that over the last few days as well. Uh, it is very of the year 2000, very much dated uh, and, and very much has a visual style of that time period. But I do know that fans of the books, they, uh, they point to that adaptation as a way of doing it well. Uh, I, I don't know if Jodorowsky has ever seen that. I imagine he, he would be surprised that they even exist if we were to bring it up to him. But that does bring us to the upcoming Denny Villeneuve film, and that is what I want to end on here today. Uh, Jodorowsky saw the trailer. He said that it's industrial cinema, that there's a lot of money, and that it is very expensive, but it is very, very expensive. It must pay in proportion. And that's the problem. There are no surprises. The form is identical to what is done everywhere. The lighting, the acting, everything is predictable. As I was saying before, when he sees these projects, this, these other adaptations, he sees them from the perspective of the compromises. And that's what he sees in the, at least the trailer. But as we talked about in our interview, which you'll be hearing next week, uh, Frank uh, Pavich, he thinks that uh, Jodorowsky should see this film and he'd love to be there when he does it. But I, I, in terms of wrapping up here today, Julia, Liam, any thoughts on the upcoming Dune project or the Denis Villeneuve adaptation? And any thoughts, kind of final thoughts on Jodorowsky's Dune, starting with you, Liam? I mean, I think that uh, I disagree with him about the Lynch version, even though I think his version would have been better, and I'm comfortable saying that. Uh, I like the Lynch version. It has, it's crazy. It's obviously not what he wanted, but there's things about it that appeal to me. I feel the same sort of excitement for the new one. I think it's not going to be perfect, but I'm excited to see what happens. Uh I think I would have loved Jodorowsky's Dune because of Jodorowsky, not because of its relationship to the source material. Uh, I'm not convinced that if you're trying to tell the story of Dune like the book, you're going to be that successful. Right. And I, I actually feel more confidence about his potential version because he was trying to do something that was his own because I just don't know that the book will work as a movie I just don't know that it will so who knows I'm still excited I still have a lot of hope for it but I think Jodorowsky's Dune might have been its own thing and that could have been cool Jodorowsky says industrial cinema is incompatible with auteur cinema 
and maybe he's right. Julia, your thoughts on uh, either the upcoming version of Dune or your final thoughts on Jodorowsky's Dune? Uh, well, I I don't really you know it's kind of I'm a kind of in a perfect place for 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 the new Dune because I I don't really have any emotional attachment to the story. Sure, so me too. Yeah, it's yeah. Something where you know if it's something that's a book very precious to me, I'd feel very nervous about it or super excited about it. But here I'm kind of in a neutral position, which in some ways is a good way to go into it. I think, and like David Lynch's film was very, it's. It just I, I can't really tell why it doesn't work like there's a lot of it that should work that doesn't and i'm so it's a very perplexing thing so i think going into seeing the new one with that fresh in the mind and being like okay these are the things that didn't work this time how do they work now and i if you haven't seen the documentary of george rousey's dune i highly recommend it not only to get you interested in dune itself and all the people who were working on it but just to see jodorowsky being jodorowsky which yeah. to me is is magical and like i could just watch him talk all day um so hearing his stories uh you know are always so fantastical and he's a delight so watching him makes me very happy you know one of the things about watching that documentary is that it really reinforced why we're doing this right it mm -hmm. really kind of for me it was one of those central points where it made me whether I say fall in love or become fascinated or whatever with him as both a character and a person, even outside of his work, I, I think it's worth exploring, you know, just a fascinating individual. And if you want kind of a pure uncut version of that, you will see that in the documentary of Jodorowsky's Dune. And I hope we, we have captured some of that today in our discussion on the project of the greatest film never made Dune. Uh, and I'm, I, for one, am very excited about Denny Villeneuve. Uh, he is a fellow Canadian. So of course I'm always pushing for him. Is a film version of Dune with all of these resources behind it able to find a large, massive, wide audience enough to maybe even create a series, which I know is Denny Villeneuve's intention in the long run? We will find out very, very soon, and you will find out, listener, in the near future as of the time that you're listening to this. But that brings this episode of Jodowowski to a close. On the next episode of Jodowowski, we're dipping into the world of comic books for the Whoa. first time. That's right. We will be looking at... The entire series of Mobius, Jodorowsky, The In-Call, on the next episode of Jodorowsky, every bit of it, not just the original In-Call, but all of the various uh, sequels, follow-ups, uh, right up to final In-Call in 2014, on the next episode of Jodorowsky. Uh, and, and so excited. I, I'm very excited for that. I've read a little of The In-Call before, but there's so much of it that is going to be completely new to me. I know that it is a beloved comic book. I know that it's... Uh, its influence is widespread, that, that tons of people were influenced by it. It's something that I'm really looking forward to checking out. Speaking of checking out, you can check us out uh, in various other places. Liam, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Well, they can head over to cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, to not only find episodes of this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts, as well as writing. And pretty soon, we're going to have our uh, Cineween event going, uh, where we are celebrating all things spooky over at cinepunks.com. Mm -hmm. uh, they can, of course, find the anthology, anthology? Find the archive of this podcast over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, they can also follow us on social media at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G, and they can follow Cinepunks on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, at Cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. And Julia, when people want to check out uh, either your past work or your future work, what's the best way for them to do so? So I am on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok as Julia C. Marchesi, and you can find me there. I will talk to you about whatever you like. I also have a <laughs> podcast called Horror Movies Survival Guide that's all about horror movies. If you want to check me out talking about another kind of film that I love. 
And of course, I think that you should follow both Liam and Julia on social media, both very wonderful people who have a lot of great opinions about things. You can always follow me on there as well on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And as Liam mentioned, you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com to check out all of our variety of podcasts and our social media, as well as in the notes of this episode, you'll see links to uh, the social media of, of the various participants, as well as uh, keep in mind that a week from the time that this episode is dropping, we'll have our interview with Frank Pavich, the director of Jodorowsky's Dune coming out on the same feed. If you're enjoying yourself, uh, leave us some feedback via the website, via our social media, or why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. But for now, that's it, folks. Uh, we're saying good night to Jodorowsky's Dune. We'll be back very soon with The In Call. Good night. Thank you.